So, what are you doing, Booch? I was just closing the curtain. So oh, I didn't feel so, like my so neighbors were watching the, uh, the podcast. Ah, so that Chris Sarandon can't watch you podcast. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but yes, sure. I w- it was making a Fright Night <laughs> reference. You, you would know if you saw him slash heard him. Also, I don't know why you do that. I always like having Chris watch me. <laughs> Chris Sarandon Chris lives company. next door. Was, Makes that's his primary quiche. source of income now. Patrick's He's paying him to watch it. <laughs> okay, so welcome to Cinema Excelsior. Um, Alright, how am I going to do this? Because I didn't... Uh, after watching this film, I was so dispirited that I didn't come up with aliases for all of you. Um, <laughs> but I if... Could, uh, I could come up with entertaining would... photos of Fabio to use. I was going to say, if any of you wants to come up with your own alias, you're welcome to. Uh, we'll start with the... I was going to say, pan- can we do replacement Fantastic Four members? I thought about that, but I, I felt like this entire cast was a, was a cut-rate Fantastic Four replacement to begin with. So I, okay, you can you, yeah, you be you and Griffith. No, uh, to, to, to the left. To the left, we have, uh, we have Daniel Watson-Jones. Daniel Watson-Jones. Hello. That was Nick Bester. That was not Daniel Watson Jones. Daniel Watson Jones, do you have a, a name that you would like to self apply? Uh, no, no, I don't. I can just be myself uh, for okay. the for immediate future. Maybe I'll come up with something here shortly. All right. Uh, Derek Long to his right. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm going to say uh, that um, my name is uh, Brian Posehn. <laughs> oh, he took the Fosain. <laughs> yes. So you mean that, wait, do you mean that you want to be the priest from this film? That you want to be Brian Posehn, the actor and comedian? Or that you are declaring, you, you are positing that the priest in this film is Brian Posehn playing himself? <laughs> All of the above. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> so meta. The most meta. <laughs> ne- next uh, next on the list, we, we have Lillian DeRitter. Lillian, say hi and then apply your name. Hi, um, I, this, this movie made me very Jennifer Walters, so I'm tempted to say that I'm replacement member She-Hulk, but I'm going to go with Doreen Green, because she is one of, Squirrel Girl, because she is one of the few to (laughs) effectively defeat Galactus recently, (laughs) and that becomes very relevant in this film. (laughs) Defeats Galactus, defeats Doctor Doom, does more than the, Thanos. Good work, Squirrel Girl. Say She's hi. great. Say hi, Nick Hero Bester. Hero is great. Hi, Nick Bester. <laughs> Who do you want to be today? Uh, given that the only replacement Fantastic Four member I know is Spider-Man, I will be Spider-Man. <laughs> there was some Fair period enough. where he was in the Fantastic Four recently, right? A few years ago? Yep. Yeah. yeah, there was. He's the only person I know of who was also in the Fantastic Four. Nick, I have to say, and, you know, because this is not a visual podcast, this may lose something uh, for our listeners, but you look a lot like Chester A. Arthur right now. <laughs> I'll take it. I will take it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you, you don't look <laughs> that gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. right. Patrick Regan, back, coming to us directly from the set of Miller's Crossing, it appears. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'll be playing the part of Marvel Cosmic Entity, the Living Tribunal today, because that way I can pass all the judgment in the world. Yes. 
Uh, wow. And, and I, I'm Stephen Claypool, and uh, if we're doing Fantastic Four replacement characters, uh, I'll, I'll bring it all the way back around to where this all began. I'll be playing the part of Howard the Duck. Howard the <laughs> Duck. <laughs> Howard the <laughs> Duck. The Duck. <laughs> also a cosmic character. Yes. Yep. Cosmic yeah. entity, Howard the Duck. Yeah. Transdimensional. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Transdimensional cosmic duck from transsexual so Transylvania. It's, <laughs> so it's, it's my favorite is, Rocky Horror is number. Is planet duck somewhere in the Marvel universe, or is it in a different universe? Ah, good question. Uh, I think we need to go back and watch Ducktales to figure that out. <laughs> yes. I was gonna say in the in the current comic, it's about the fact that he's switched one of the from one Marvel universe to another, and they reference the movie directly. It's very strange. Okay. Mm. As opposed to the normally sensible adventures of Howard the Duck. <laughs> of Howard the Duck, yes. Wow. In yes. the normally sensible Marvel universe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, guys. So uh, I feel like uh, we have successfully walked through the Valley of the Shadow of Death on this one. Because, oh, God. Uh, this is, I promise, this is the end of our dark, dark road through the bleak period. Of, uh, of Marvel films, but my god, did this one get bleak. We watched Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. I, I will tell you right now, I have seen a lot of these Marvel movies. This was easily the most aggressively boring bad one I have seen thus far. Did you watch Elektra? Yes. I dislike okay. this one more than Elektra. That one takes yeah. the cake for me. I couldn't no, even dude, find that... anything to talk about. This one, See, I have pages and pages of stuff to talk about. Yeah, but dude, in Electra, you, you came up with your ghost thesis, and that really oh, brought the story yeah. to life to me. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, the opening sequence of Electra and the ghost thesis worked for me way more than anything mm-hmm. in this film whatsoever. Uh, okay, only... I, I will admit that I completely forgot about that ghost thesis. All I remember <laughs> is the misery of watching Electra. So that was entirely <laughs> podcast related quality here here's uh. my, here's my point though <laughs> this movie is so bad that we literally just spent the last minute or two talking about electra so we didn't have to talk about fantastic mm. four rise of the silver <laughs> Surfer. true that true uh, that the the date today is may 3rd 2015 several of us mm. i know have seen uh avengers age of ultron uh, we, already, we're not talking but about we're not it going yet. to talk about that i just want to date it so that if i say something that's horribly offensive i can later chalk it up to being far in my past <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Senator, on uh, May 3rd, 2015, you were recorded as a... Do you recall this, dude? <laughs> All right, so... Um, Some people are genetically inferior to other people. So we're, uh, we're returning the whole cast and crew from, uh, from the first Fantastic Four film. That includes uh, hack director Tim Story. It includes uh, producer Bernd Eichinger, he of the uh, the intellectual property rights scheme that secured him the Fantastic Four films in the first place. Um, and our our beloved cast of Ewan Griffith, Jessica Alba, uh, Chris Evans, Michael Chiklis, and uh, the inimitable Julian McMahon as, oh. as yes. Doctor Who. Charm! Yes. Two, two of those people are doing fine work. Yep, in in this the uh, the two part season finale of Fantastic Four the show airing on FX, um, we will be joined uh, this the... particular time around by Lawrence Fishburne, Doug Jones, and Andre Bauer. Are we it was really Bauer? distracting to see on the movie, by the way, because I kept expecting him to be him from this character from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yes. You also left out Kerry Washington. 
and terribly embarrassing herself. I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine why I would forget Carrie Washington was in this film. Um, <laughs> let, let's. Uh, Did you mention the writer? Rather, uh, were there two no, writers? No, I didn't. There, there were, were two writers, not a team. Uh, and mm. one of them is definitely worth mentioning, I believe. Who, who was it, Dooch? It's Mark Frost from Twin Peaks. Oh, he came Mark back Frost. for this one. Yeah. Huh. Uh, he wrote the first film as well, didn't he? He did write the first film. Yeah. Uh, huh. I, I but the, se- the second writer was of... not David Lynch. Sadly. <laughs> That's, well, that's, he was the director, actually. That would be an amazing Fantastic Four Fantastic movie. Four. Yes, it would. Uh, I thought there were a lot of gestures at good writing and subtle scripting going on here that were uh, either like, a very particular gesture on his part. Uh, yes, I did think that he was giving the audience the finger in some fashion, and I think he was writing it for an audience that he wanted to give the finger to. Uh, but I also think that he... This feels to me like the first draft of what a really good writer would make if they were going to make a Fantastic Four script, that, that where they're like, and then uh, the hero's going to come in and he's going to say snappy line, but I don't have time to write a snappy line, so I'm going to say something that's going to remind me later to do that. And then someone found that <laughs> script and took it and made it bef- before they ac- the uh, writer actually had a chance to do anything real with it. I or would love to know it was the entirely dumped so- down on the set. I would love to know what the development cycle on this script is because it feels rushed as hell. Like, cause and edited that, down. This literally looks like me and Lillian's first drafts because like, there's just sort of like, yeah. and we'll do something later yeah. here and I don't know what it is yet, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah I, I absolutely believe that uh, since I have much more faith in you as a writer uh, producing a final product than I do in whoever <laughs> the hell wrote this piece of crap. And I do in the person uh, who created Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other this, guy who created Twin Peaks, let's be honest. Yes. I also think that the script probably was better when it was longer, because it's clearly been edited down. They have cut this thing down to the bones. They, can, there are spots where we can we should, see that there should be an extra scene here, but they didn't want to cram it in. We can talk about that, but if we want to talk about that, do we want to try to give a summary of this incredibly sparse 92-minute film? Uh, I would be happy to... Uh, uh, I, I, I would be happy to notes. do this, too. Order! I need... Where's my bell? Here it is. <laughs> order. This is my order bell. Um, all right, who, who wants uh, wants the dubious honor of trying to summarize this film? Patrick, but, uh, the, 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 did the, you prepare the something key... specific? Go ahead, Stefan, sorry. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that the, the key to this is uh, you need to be able to do it, one, in less than 92 minutes, which is the running time of the film, and two, uh, be moderately entertaining, which is also better than the film, and then we can package this and sell it as an alternative. I will give it a shot. Go for it. Okay. So the Fantastic Four opens at some point after the original film closes. Our heroes are sort of vague celebrities, but there's something going on in space, and it's generic and vague, and we don't know what it is. On Earth, Reed and Sue are supposed to get married, but after several attempts that they just have kind of missed, for reasons, can't. They're also flying coach. We don't know why. (laughs) Then they're doing stuff, and then they decide they're going to get married for realsies this time, and then they kind of dither about it. And then Reed has a bachelor party. And that's kind of dithered about, too. And then a general shows up because there's been mysterious phenomenon all over the Earth. And they talk about it in a nightclub kitchen. 
and then Reed, he, the general literally saying to him that this is a matter of international security, and Reed says, eh, screw it, I'd rather get married, so he's gonna get married, but then he secretly builds science stuff in secret to find out what the thing is. Um, while that's happening, Doctor Doom is awakened in Latveria by the mysterious uh, cosmic phenomenon. Then, at the wedding, Reed's PDA starts beeping because his mysterious science device has located the thing, which is coming straight towards them. Not the, the thing, the thing. Not the thing, the And thing, not John Carpenter's the thing. Or lowercase t thing. Yes. The entity. The entity shows up and turns out to be the Silver Surfer. Stuff happens. Johnny chases after the Silver Surfer. The Silver Surfer chokes him out, and he lands, and his powers are going kind of wonky. Um, we discover that when he touches people, he swaps the, po the powers with them. Uh, they join up with the general to figure out what is going on, and meanwhile, Doctor Doom talks to the Silver Surfer for a bit and then gets shot. He then shows up, handsome again, and they all talk about what's going on. <laughs> he was on. shot with a handsome bullet. <laughs> he might as well have been. So they, they talk about what's going on, and they, the general says that they need Doctor Doom's help, but the Fantastic Four are obviously somewhat uninclined to trust him. And then they figure out some stuff about the Silver Surfer that uh, every planet blows up along his route and that uh, they need to separate him from his board. And then in a moment of stress, Reed latches onto a random word that Sue says and figures out they need to use a tachyon <laughs> pulse. Yep. So they go to Germany where apparently <laughs> the army has jurisdiction and they set up their little device and Ben yells at a bear and then the tachyon... <laughs> yeah, all true. Keep, keep hitting it, yep. The, ta the tachyon pulse happens, and the silver surfer is distracted by Sue, and then the surfer falls off his board, and then they go to Siberia. Why, I don't know. Because the army and has then, jurisdiction there. Because you always torture in Siberia. Then the general's like, okay, well, Fantastic Four, we're going to lock you in a room now, and then we're gonna just going to start torturing the silver surfer immediately. Mm -hmm. And As so... The Sioux decides to go invisible and sneak out and just chat with the Silver Surfer for a bit. And he reveals on his abs that Galactus, the destroyer of worlds, is coming. <laughs> <laughs> and that he's going to be here soon and he's going to destroy their world. And that he uh, helps Galactus because it's a deal he made so that he could save his planet and his love. Meanwhile, Doom stills the Silver Surfer's surfboard um, and kills the general. And then they chase after Doom... And then Doom beats them up in the fan and the Fantastic Car, and then Johnny like collects all their powers into his Johnniness, and then beats up Doom. Doom falls off the surfboard. Um, Sue gets stabbed by Doom, and then the Silver Surfer is all like, "Oh no, you're just like my lady love. This is bad." And then he touches his board, gets all silver again, heals her, flies into Galactus, blows up Galactus. And then Sue and Reed get married for realsies in Japan. And then something happens that I don't care about that makes them have to leave their wedding. And then uh, Venice after, is like, falling into the Adriatic. <laughs> okay. Then after like three credit lines. in Japan for no reason. Yes, after three credit lines, like literally it's like three things. Uh, we immediately see that, oh, the Silver Surfer is alive, but no one cares. So, and then I got really angry and wanted to go to bed. And that's <laughs> my main memories of this movie. I, I think you yes, uh, I was okay. right. You hit every major plot point, including getting angry <laughs> at the end. 
I I would well, say that there's a pretty big one right at the beginning that you left out. Uh, yeah, I was about to say the, the, very the main emotional thread of the movie uh, is this problem of Sue, of the fact that he's hiding the fact that he needs to save the world because he's prioritized his marriage because Sue is very upset about this. I would say that Sue is very upset that he needs to save the world. Uh, that's not a plot point, I would say, so much as in a, a the complexity in an emotional relationship. Uh, the very <laughs> first thing that happened, like the the movie opens on a planet that looks enough like Earth that you're supposed to try to figure out what part of Earth it is before uh, you realize that it's not Earth. Uh, the, the, oh, that was it, that that was me saying. Then yeah. something vague happens in space, and yes. we don't know what it is, and but don't care. It, it's pretty specifically a planet implodes on itself, uh, and yeah. then the the Silver Surfer leaves. So I, th- I think that there actually is something. Uh, going on here like that a lot of the the scenes that are in other countries are is, in other countries for a there reason are... like they're not just i mean they are randomly being sent to other places like the human torch is dropped out of the sky by the silver surfer over egypt uh or over the middle east somewhere uh completely arbitrarily but it's so that they can get as many foreign locations as possible because i would guarantee that Someone went, like the, the producers of this movie, went to the writer and said, we want to make our money internationally. This is not going to make mo- money domestically, but we're going to sell the hell out of it everywhere else in the world. Uh, and, and a way so to do that it, is uh, to have the human torch drop on top of two vaguely Middle Eastern men making coffee and no, uh, to dress is, Jessica uh, Alba up like a geisha. And have a uh, scene with a camel. Yeah. <laughs> Think about how many how many scenes are in uh, foreign countries, though, or in Almost different locations. Considering the Fantastic I'm... Four operate, in my mind, entirely in New York City. That or Johnny other chases, dimensions. Or other dimensions, or yes. Or space, yeah. Uh, space. Johnny chases the, the Silver Surfer past the Washington Monument down the entire Atlantic coast uh, to, to get a second really American quickly. location. But the, really, really quickly. Uh, the effects of the Silver Surfer are seen in Egypt to begin with. Uh, then they go to London. Uh, he's in the Middle East at some point. Uh, and there's the, the final scene in Japan. Uh, I think there's at least one or two. Oh, uh, they're in Germany Siberia. in Black Forest and Siberia. And they and they freeze the harbor in Japan before they even do their marriage in Japan. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, um, so it all comes back around. It was foreshadowing. Uh, but I, I think that the opening <laughs> shot of the planet uh, being identifiably Earth-like, but... You know, an unrecognizable continent uh, is very deliberate. That they're trying to make you wonder where on Earth this is set before they demonstrate that this is not Earth uh, and that this planet was just destroyed before the Silver Surfer leaves it. So they're trying to say, "Uh oh, Earth has something to worry about." If you don't know who the Silver Surfer is or Galactus, I would say that the vast majority of the people who know that probably live in America, and this movie is made for an international audience. It's definitely possible. <laughs> But um, I can tell you that international international returns hadn't quite reached that level when this movie was made. Okay, I, I, lo- well, I, mean, I love I love that argument fair. though that the film begins with the premise of let's not worry about the American audience. After the after the first film, we got him. <laughs> um, D- Derek, you you sent us a text right as you were beginning your viewing that said, I believe something like four minutes in, and the stakes have hit rock bottom. Would you like to elaborate? <laughs> I mean, I that. just this entire film is an abomination. It's <laughs> everything I hate about contemporary cinema. It's I it's think that by far purpose. 
by far the worst <laughs> film I have watched for this podcast. Um, yeah. I think so, yeah. It, I would, or, Derek. I, I, worst in the sense of, yeah, maybe not, you know, in a kind of technical sense. Uh, I, th- I think some of the, I think the canon uh, films that we watch might might have gotten there, but there were a lot more fun to watch than this. Um, the the stakes kind of uh, idea, it just, it, it's sort of like the very first time we see our heroes, it's, I mean, as I recall, it's it's them like arguing about their, they're in the airport, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's, and, it's to demonstrate that they have to fly coach because they're, yeah, even though they're right. celebrities and, and have superpowers, they're regular people like us who have to deal with how to get your luggage into the, yeah, uh, but the they coach got overhead bumped. bins. They were supposed to be yeah. in first class. <laughs> yeah, but they still have to deal with regular human stuff. I mean, a, a, most, most of what I was thinking about when, when I sent you guys that text was just the, the plot point of the, the wedding. Yeah. Um, and I don't, th- I don't think in theory, I'm, I mean, in theory, I think it was possible to write a compelling through line surrounding this wedding. I don't think the way to go about it, though, was the way that it was engaged, where basically uh, Sue Storm becomes a kind of villain, like, yeah. in that plot yeah. point. Like, I mean, the ho- basically the whole plot is driven by... Um, just this like stereotypical image of oh Sue Storm has to have the perfect wedding and you know mm-hmm. she you know is gonna prioritize this above saving the world and you know it's just the way that Sue Storm was written throughout that entire plot line like mm-hmm. it was incredibly like I, I mean I don't use this this term like lightly but it was incredibly misogynistic like I mean this this is the <laughs> film I think that of all of the films we've watched, and we've watched a lot of films with some not so great <laughs> writing of female characters, this might be among the worst, um, if not the worst. Yeah, um, and I agree I think with that. that. Wedding, I think that wedding plotline is really what kind of capstones that. You know, even putting aside the like repeated joke of like Jessica Alba's naked again. Oh, ha 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 ha. Um, um, yeah. So that that was one uh, the main kind of aspect of the the kind of low stakes like it's not only just a kind of like misogynistic plot line it's also just not compelling like yeah, there's it's, no it's, reason for me to be interested in this it's a bold decision to make the i have to have the perfect wedding the a plot of your superhero no. film i would say that that is definitely the b plot though uh because the the a plot is already the the earth could be destroyed that's the first thing that's shown is a planet getting destroyed and then that guy's coming for earth uh the Immediately, the, the first drama that you find out about with the Fantastic Four is the family drama of the wedding uh, and how these people are relating, to, or how uh, Reed and Sue are relating to each other. Um, so, and mm-hmm. I would say that it's not so much the wedding plot as the way they have decided to characterize Sue Storm by not characterizing her at all. Everything that she does is either uh, trying to save people or trying to make this wedding happen. What are you they, talking about? She, she wears glasses in some scenes? <laughs> and... she wear, you can tell she's a scientist because she wears glasses. You can tell she's a scientist she a because nowhere in, in this movie do they Don't even say science. that she's a scientist. They have I literally had to remind Lillian. She's a scientist. She doesn't even know anything about her fiancé. Like, she has to ask Ben Grimm how this man, this genius, aristocratic 
tall, brilliant white man uh, knows this general, how, how they might know each other, because she's clearly never met him. Uh, uh, so she, she receives no, like, character development at all. It's done entirely through her pursuit of the wedding, and then other people pursuing other goals that uh, are usually counter to each other, uh, but uh, are always counter to the wedding. Uh, well, Johnny's trying to help with the wedding because he's her brother. But uh, and then, then the, the really. real plot of science and danger keeps interfering with her life. But, just... So I completely agree that this is the worst and most misogynistic portrayal, or very possibly, <laughs> of a woman well, that uh, we've had. But I, I would posit, just hold on to this. I will come back to it later. That this might be very deliberate on the writer's part. You are attributing so much, uh, so much. I will to back it up man. with, with yeah, evidence. Yeah, later. Just yeah, wait. But, but, I want to. I want to hear. I want to hear Bester's Bester's initial. Your take on both the Sue Storm question and this film question, because when Derek expressed that he thought this was far and away the worst film that he has watched for this project, you were slightly incredulous. So I want to hear your take on this. I haven't said a whole lot because I didn't hate this movie. What? I'm oh sorry, I didn't. That is an incorrect opinion. <laughs> I didn't like this movie, but I didn't hate it. I feel like I feel like I keep going in with the lowest possible expectations for all of these Fantastic Four movies, and they never exceed my expectations. But they never like are so bad. They're never as bad as I imagined them to be. <laughs> so for that, I appreciate I appreciate them on that level. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I felt like. Obviously, there's a lot of shitty things happening here. Uh, but, you know, I felt like... We talked about this in terms of being feeling like kind of the first draft of a movie. Uh, and I feel like I would really like the second draft of this movie. I think that I think that this would be a really good second draft. And I think there's doing some... Six, I really like the celebrity draft. aspect of, uh, of the film. I like that they deal with the fact that these people are going to be minor celebrities and e-television is going to be following these people around. Uh, uh, so that that's something I appreciate, and you know, otherwise, like, you know, I didn't really give a shit about anything happening with you know the Silver Surfer or Doctor Doom, but you know, Chris Evans was there, and I love Chris Evans. I mean, there's de- I definitely see what you mean on that, Nick. And but one thing that me and Lil were talking about uh, as we drove back uh, today was that there the we had a lot of sort of micro problems with the movie, where like in, at any at any moment. You can point to a a ridiculous thing that makes absolutely no sense. Whether it's, um, you know, the way Alicia Masters portrays, way Kerry Washington portrays a blind woman, uh, to Ben yelling at a bear, to the fact that the general is like the most ridiculously jockey person in the world. And they got uh, Andre Brower to play him. It was like noted jock Andre Brower. I know, right? Jockey, at least in terms of everything I've ever seen him in. Wait, I'm, I'm confused I by your inclusion of the bear in that list, though. Are you claiming that was very <laughs> bad Because that was definitely one of the highlights of the movie. Yeah. I, but the thing about this movie is, and is that it, it's got several sort of huge macro problems mm-hmm. that I think are responsible for a lot of the the smaller problems that kind of wash out from that. And unless you can really find a way to address the the way those macro problems play out, uh, you know, I'm not sure a second draft is going to cut it. Yeah, probably, Um, but... I... uh, Let's see, I'm sorry, there were several things in there that I wanted to respond to. We haven't actually done opening thoughts. Uh, These are them. 
We just... <laughs> I, I would rather do, like, generalizations. What? Just keep rolling with it. Keep starting and stopping. Try and uh, figure we're it out. The, I guess we're in the we fucking talk. trenches, man. <laughs> <laughs> we're going down that. Right. Don't pull out. You got you got Vader on your tail. Yeah, Why stay do on well. target. Can You're the boss. Can you reach over to your buddy and his head's not there anymore and it's just goo. Do you want us to, to sync up Steph no, at a particular time when I, I, he comes will, in will. or out and you'll just no. figure it all out? Because that seems like it'd be a lot harder. I will figure this shit okay. out. Keep rolling. Right. Boom. Uh, uh, let's see, what was the last thing that I wanted to respond to? Uh, I think the inclusion of the bear is genius. Um... <laughs> Uh, but specifically from the... Dang it, there was something back at the beginning. I don't want to keep uh, while, rambling. While, while, while you're digging, L- Lillian, yeah. you, you, you jump in here. You look like you got something to say. Um, I mean, I think sort of the big macro problem that I had here is that the Fantastic Four are Marvel's first family, right? They, they are the go-to archetype for the mother and father of the Marvel Universe, which is always Reed and Sue, um, the kind of grumpy uncle, which is always Ben, and the teenage boy slash early 20s boy little brother. Um, and I think the problem here is that whoever, I mean, Patrick Patrick said this a, a little bit too, that like whoever wrote this family seemed to forget that when families argue, it's out of love. I, I got the feeling that a lot of these people didn't actually like each other. <laughs> and so there was no loss at the threat of the team breaking up. There was no, like, mm-hmm. it seems like Johnny's Johnny's worrying about losing the team is about losing his endorsement deals. And I think one of, one of the biggest issues for me was that they took somebody as charismatic as Chris Evans and managed to make him, to make him a horrible pretty much irredeemable human being they 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 that was oh, the plot line in the first place was supposed to be johnny's a jerk and he learns how to not be a jerk um, oh i don't i don't think that's just i don't think that's true at all that's one aspect of his portrayal but i think he's actually doing a pretty good job that, that they've written some more subtle stuff into his uh port- into his character i mean the stuff the stuff that he says to ben about alicia um the the random military girl who seems to just be there for romance subplot reasons. I'll talk about her um, in a minute. Oh, I... Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I see there are basically three plots in this film and then a couple more subplots. Uh, there's Silver Surfer trying to... Or, you know, as the harbinger of Galactus uh, and the, the threat of Earth being destroyed. There's Sue Storm wanting to have a wedding and there being complications to that. A, a part of that is her relationship with her prospective husband uh, and the way that he relates to the rest of the team uh, versus uh, the the way that he relates to the needs of science. And there's the plot of Johnny trying to help everyone get along, or help these two people get along, uh, while keeping up his, like, ribbing relationship with, uh, with the thing. Uh, but also Johnny uh, pursuing a woman who actually sees through his public persona, uh, and trying to um, reconcile uh, his, his own inability to connect with people, which manifests itself in the plot uh, because he can't touch people for the entire second act, 
Uh, but even in the first act, he's trying to reach out to people, and there, it keeps being complicated. Uh, and the the evidence that he does overcome this uh, comes in the form of like the traditional man being rewarded with attractive woman, uh, boring, you know, cliche. So, so I'm I'm going to go a, a step further here uh, because generally, in terms of attempts, structural mm-hmm. attempts, I agree with what you're saying, Dooge. Um, yes, I, I think that the the general idea with Johnny's arc here. And you see this in the way Chris Evans plays him. And I give credit to Chris Evans for, mm-hmm. for actually being able to layer some of this texture into here. Uh, Johnny is incredibly lonely in this film. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because he, he, he sees Reed and Sue getting married, and that's his sister getting married. He sees Ben and Alicia together. And he recognizes, to some extent, the hollowness of what he has done. He is attracted to uh, Frankie Reyes, the, the uh, army captain, who incidentally in the comics is a herald of Galactus. Um, But that's neither here nor there. He is attracted to Frankie because she seems to see through him. His story with his powers kind of represents that inability to connect. But the the point at the end that I saw as as his reward uh, was not so much her as it was the fact that at the end of the film, he is able to physically connect with his teammates again. Like, he mm-hmm. is able to, to touch them and hug them and actually have that kind of moment <laughs> that he wasn't able to earlier in the film. And so there, there is something there that I think is a, a little stronger. Now, that said, I am wholly in agreement with Derek. This is the worst film that we have watched for this entire project, <laughs> and it is the worst film I've seen I, in I recent mean, memory. <laughs> okay. I think both of those are fair. <laughs> yes. Um, I, oh, what what is there? What the hell? What is there to actually dig into in this film? It, it, it is I a. Think, uh, there there are right a couple there. of things because in in a weird way the horrible of the horribleness of this film is kind of intricate. Um, yes, I mean, dude, 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 it's aware that we're nowhere near that This is a movie like Lucy that is meant as a parody, <laughs> but is presented by the studio as an actual uh, money making attempt. Intricate does not mean deliberate, dude. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> think it's deliberate. Well, here, all right. Let, so, Derek, Derek, you, I mean, Derek, Mark, you, you, I'm you telling you, Mark Frost made this movie, and it got. Uh, it got made somehow, but stamped on so much right, that you dudes, can't dudes, see dudes. his actual voice. Let's, let's, Derek, you lay out the intricacy, and then, dude, you can discuss why you think it's deliberate. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, yeah, oh, I'm going to need him to convince me on this, because I don't, I don't buy it. No. Uh, so, uh, I mean, in terms of going back to just this idea of, like, low stakes, I feel like... The, the Sue Storm wedding plotline, low stakes there. But in some ways, the A plot also somehow, inexplicably, <laughs> feels like it has low stakes. Yeah. When the stakes are the existence of the entire planet. Now, uh. there are plenty of like films where that's the case. But I think here, the, the issue is, is probably with Galactus. Galactus is, I mean, as kind of portrayed and, and the way it comes across in this film, uh, is, is not compelling it doesn't feel threatening like should, you see the destruction of entire planets mm-hmm. um we should but talk you about, told you about the destruction of other planets um but you you know you don't see that destruction on the ground in the case of in the case of the planet that gets destroyed yeah I mean, you don't you even see, see like one family up. cowering 
Yeah. Yeah. Should, I would argue uh, that Galactus is not in this film. That Galactus does I was gonna not say, exist. I'll just say a quick comic book uh, note it, like, uh, for maybe he's someone not a who's, character. We can't point may to not him as, be as often wondering why Galactus threat, looked like a big space cloud. He, he has no voice. Uh, he has the, no volition. There's no reasoning for anything that he's yeah, doing. Yeah. The, the that reason he that he is a big space uh, cloud right, in this so movie of, is that so, he's sorry, being patterned off of the Ultimate Universe's version of Galactus, which was just basically a giant nano machine swarm. Uh, the normal version of Galactus yeah, in the major 616 universe is of a giant man in purple helmet, uh, with purple armor and a big horned helmet. Uh, no, the, the idea behind Galactus, uh, he is portrayed as a giant white man, but the, the actual reality is that Basically, what he really is is so I would argue that it's important. That he basically looks like that, and correct me if I'm it. wrong. Galactus is always portrayed as a giant white man, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. but yeah. in the comics, yeah, the visual picture the in the comic is always of yeah, a giant yeah. white guy. Uh, that that can be the, wow. the story reason for him to be a giant white guy, but you always see him as a giant white guy, which I think is important because there is a, a strange and subtle colonialist message here uh, that the... Okay. Deep here. No, I'm really not. So this hard. is all right on the surface. See, no, but dude, Look at this. Okay. Dude, right, wait, 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 let's, let's, let's hear him out. Let's hear him okay. out. Okay. Um, what? Yes, uh, there is a canonical reason for him to be just a molecular, uh, you know, a, a, a cosmic the cloud. Boards are fine. Uh, there is a, uh, a an easily explainable reason for why he's not a giant guy flying through space because it would look completely ridiculous on screen to have a giant <laughs> human flying through space. But, but small human. There's a very, there's a very interesting in a superhero film. <laughs> there's an interesting relationship between the the primary protagonists of the film and people of color in this film. Uh, and I would say that the Silver Surfer is probably the third person of color in the film, unless you want to go out on a limb and say that uh, the, the the thing becomes a person of color in the way that he is treated within the story uh, by the writers or by the, the script itself. But that has more to do with, uh, I think, the, the basic Fantastic Four dynamic. Uh, but uh, that the Silver Surfer is enslaved by a, 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 a destructive force. Cloud. And to be the harbinger of that destructive force as it goes from place to place within the galaxy, colonizing planets by consuming them. Uh, I would bet, and it's voiced by Lawrence Fishburne, uh, who is basically playing Neo, I mean uh, Morpheus. Like, this is Lawrence Fishburne's, we want the voice of Morpheus to come into this movie. You don't have to do anything. You can phone it in. That's fine. You'll get paid. He, they give him nothing to work with. He creates no character because it's not asked of him. Uh, but we're clearly seeing a colonizing force with uh, an enslaved character I, going I through the galaxy and destroying reason. things. <laughs> I would bet that, that on at some level the studio did not want to see the the actual colonizing force represented by a white person. I think you're really stretching. <laughs> I what's that? I think I think the I, other I thing you, Patrick, to remember though Stephen. is like along the lines of talking about uh, talking about colonialization is that Jessica Alba who is a person of color the the Fantastic Four has one member who actually is a person of color and she is whitewashed beyond belief she has the wrong kind of shade of blonde hair it looks ridiculous it's a wig 
She physically looks like her skin has been either makeup lightened or lightened in post. The character's um, eyes are blue, but her actual eyes are brown. I don't know whether they're yeah, contacts or whether they digitally altered them, but they look super weird, and I wouldn't be surprised if they yes. digitally altered them. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where, yes, She's Sue is, is an iconic, very white 60s blonde, but, mm-hmm. I mean, where are we in Jessica Alba's career right now? Like, how, how she, far away are we from Dark Angel? Like, is this the kind of uh, thing is where she, they... Is she Latina? Yeah, that's she, depressingly yeah, okay. That. Because post honey, I feel like she, as an actress, is marketed by her public relations people uh, sometimes as a woman of color and sometimes uh, just as a a. I don't know how to end this sentence without yes. uh, sounding awful, yes. but um, yeah, no, but that's her. But I, yeah, I like, think the intention, the intention, they select of this... when they're going to market her as a woman of color. Uh, and in this movie, I'd yeah, say that the, she's the, pr- the clearly... problem with this read for me is is that there is that very clear cognitive dissonance moment of looking of looking at her and being like, there there was a subtle way to do this, and you chose to do it. There's the nothing subtle <laughs> executed in this film except some of the stuff that accidentally got in in the script. I think. Uh-huh. I, I I appreciate where you're coming from on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you are giving this film a significant amount of credit for depths that do not exist. Well, hold on. There, there are kind of three different levels that I'm talking about the film on. There's the script, then there's the actual, like, production of the movie that we, that we see, and then there's, like, the marketing and, and the way that it's presented to... I mean, legitimately, right? I'm not, I'm not making a joke here. Like, I'm talking about the, the script that we're dealing with and then uh, the, the actual level of... All right. Production. So t- tell tell us tell us why Mark Frost has ingeniously crafted this uh, this joke that he is playing on us all. I think that he's commenting directly on his perception of what comic book movies are, or possibly just the the audience that they want this movie marketed to, because it's clearly aimed at. Uh, Young teenage or you know teenagers who have money to burn uh, won't care about the complexities of finely crafted writing. Uh, for instance, one of the cameos in this movie I did not even know was a cameo. Uh, my girlfriend had to tell me that the the female reporter that Jessica Alba sees on TV is an actual reporter for the E News Network. E News in quotation marks the E Network that I didn't even know that was a cameo. <laughs> yeah, Juliana because, Rancic. Yes, Juliana Rancic. The, they're marketing to people who watch E. Uh, and Jessica Alba, or Sue Storm rather, not Jessica Alba, is portrayed as someone who would watch E. She cares about her appearance in public and, and the, the appearances of a perfect wedding. Uh, they, they never give her anything complicated to do as a character at all. Uh, she's portrayed as the most stereotypical shallow female that you've ever seen in a comic book. Uh, the, the character who is closest to the audience that the uh, that the movie is marketed to is the Human Torch, and he's the only one whose uh, character growth is actually part of the plot that's discussed by the character and by the characters around them as human behavior. I, I think, like, I think there's a subtle difference between the way that people talk about the things that that Johnny needs to do and the way that people talk about the things that Reed needs to do. Like, they're not saying to Reed, you need to pay more attention to your wife instead of to science. They're saying, like, uh, she, she's giving you guff because you're not paying attention to her. Um, like, y- you need to, like, 
keep your promises to her. Uh, they're not saying you need to change this about your person, I guess. Uh, okay, okay, I, but but um, we're, we're dealing with a situation here where, you know, Occam's razor. Either mm-hmm. Mark Frost has crafted a brilliantly satirical script that has flown under the radar and shredded the conventions of the film, but the studio no. tamped it down and refused, or he wrote a bad script. I think that... I, don't th- I actually don't think those things are necessarily... Uh, mutually exclusive. I agree. Take, take the Transformers franchise. Okay. Like, every single one of those films is an abomination. Mm-hmm. But... Mm, really bad. Michael Bay is actually a pretty smart guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you I, I see where Dooge is coming from here. Like, okay. there's, there's a sense in which you can write a film that basically hates its audience. Mm. And Lucy, I think, as, starting Scarlett Johansson you know, is the perfect example. And sell it as this kind of open text that... Oh, you know, you can enjoy it as as schlock, or if you know you really are into branding and thing semen jokes, then yeah, you got you got that. I mean, um, so like there is there is this jokes. weird way in which like you see this in modern cinema, where you, like mm-hmm. you can make like I an mean, intentionally bad. <laughs> I hate to burst uh, your academic bubble script here, or text and, but and sell it. You guys are giving us ways. so much yeah, more credit like than we're actually like capable of. Like nobody really cares if you're. Hate <laughs> like you have to remember this. Is that this was not written? Yeah. This is something he was probably on contract to do, and that he also remember he's the one of two writers on this. So this that means they had two different drafts. Then that the the WGA decided to have both different versions to be merited as as a shared credit. But like you know, this was probably done on contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you don't yes. really want to. You don't want to do this sort of anger thing with and you I know one of the major studios because these are the people who do have to, at the end of the day, pay your bills, and you're losing one mm-hmm. fifth of your potential inco- of your potential employers. Like I. <laughs> Touche. I, do, I don't think that he does it out of I malice. I mean, you can say that. You can say that, but David Goyer. <laughs> da- uh, uh, da- yeah. David Goyer's hatred for his own audience has be- has become more and more apparent as as we... And, like, not to get too far into DC, but... This is a common... Well, not common, luckily. Uh, this this is a phenomenon. I think I think the one thing that we have to be careful with that, though, is to is to question how many elements come from, you know, Mark Frost, who is a major, majorly brilliant creator, and how many elements were picked, you know, there there could be as many as four to seven script doctors on this movie that are uncredited. I really like like Bester's shrug. Mark Frost, eh. (laughs) I, just, uh, <laughs> I feel I feel like there's just a whole lot of authorial intent uh, being thrown around here. Like, dude, earlier well, you, you said like we are. Dealing, I don't think it, we're dealing with the script of this movie. We're not dealing with a script. There's no script for us to deal with. We are well, we are I dealing know, with a I'm movie that, that you have decided like you have come up with like a platonic ideal of a script, and you've and you seem to be saying, well, this is Mark Frost thing. You have no idea what Mark Frost did here. I know. I'm. I, I know. I'm. I'm uh... I am taking the credit that I think this. there are elements of the script that deserve credit, and I'm projecting them onto Mark Frost because it's hard for me to imagine that he had a lot of control over what clearly yeah, is will. a terrible film. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, you know, 
He's a Mark Frost apologist. Assigning the credit. You're a writer on contract. But you're still not, I mean, you're not going to turn in something that you are absolutely ashamed of. Patrick, really? I think that. Well, okay. I think that um, you're on you're on a deadline. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. Is that, and you, depending on how many notes you get, um, that it's entirely possible that. I mean, nobody has a story credit on this, right? Uh, Frost and Mark, whatever the hell his name is, or uh, Joe Truman. It's the same, it's the it same guys again. It's just yeah, jo- uh, John Truman and Mark Frost story, and then Don Payne and Mark Frost screenplay. Don Payne. Being a, uh, he wrote Thor, he wrote Thor the Dark World, he has written several episodes of The Simpsons, but later day Simpsons. Okay. Uh. Yeah, so, because I, I think I think the funny, the, the tricky thing about sequels, um, especially, you know, in a post-Spider, you know, Sam Raimi Spider-Man world, is that a lot of your plot points are starting to get dictated to you, and that'll, that'll start to happen even more when we hit, you know, modern Feige MCU. Um... But I think that's the danger is that we there's no there's no way to parse out what what Mark Frost actually got to create and what he was handed by development executives who and, wanted toy wanted to sell toys. And that's that's absolutely <laughs> fair. Um, and but it seems to Here's, me that uh, hold on, l- let me get this out. Uh, there are too many times in the the movie where a character says something that is an absolute like synthesized cliche of the the role that they are playing in the film uh you said that uh you were surprised at how much uh the the general is a meathead but i don't think that that's actually evident other than when he says that directly well that's my point uh, when he he starts talking about being the stereotype of the quarterback, and Mister Fantastic starts talking about being the I mean, stereotype point, though, of the nerd, who then not that the openly acknowledges, like "I got the hot girl." The way you, you, no one like would a, ever a, a, say. Uh, you, you, you can't you, you can't just say what, what you're feeling. That makes me feel angry. <laughs> I think that they were just on a two-week deadline and like had barely any time to do anything. Exactly. Well, hold on. <laughs> well, right. yeah, Dooge, that's possible, Dooge, but hey, I think that there are several order other bell. examples Dooge, of this. Dooge, Dooge, respond real quick, and then Derek has been biting his lip. So you respond okay. quickly, and then Derek, um, go to you. I, I think that the entire portrayal of Sue Storm is another example of this that uh, many of us, I'm sure, can go in-depth into. But, uh... The to to wrap up my point about Johnny, like they, they actually talk about him as uh, the Frankie Captain Frankie, the woman who he is interested in, says to him, "I've read your spec sheet, or I, I know your your detail sheet," and then describes the characterization of Human Torch from the comics. She's she's basically the audience saying, "I know who you are. You're just shallow." And then he takes it upon himself to prove to her that he is not. And that is how he overcomes uh, the the stuff in the end, and actually becomes useful to the team, and bridges the gap between himself and the other teammates. Uh, so his journey is the audience's projected journey to uh, rise out of the shallow schlock that this script is, and move on to a different kind of um, more intelligent film. But then this, that script gets made by people who don't understand any of that and are just putting things on screen, trying to make a story happen that is somehow representative of the colors of the characters who are in the books. 
All right, Derek. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think what Dooge is getting at, um, and this kind of re reflects what uh, Patrick and Lillian were saying, is that it's less about any one author or even a group of authors or screen, you know, screenwriters or you know, uh, people doing touch-up, but it's it's a result of the process. Like somewhere along the way, I do think there is an argument for you. You do see that kind of conscious, like combination of you know kind of disdain for the audience and also like attempted jokery attempted humor that mm -hmm. just kind of falls flat in mm -hmm. the execution because somewhere further down on the line someone didn't understand necessarily the the kind of higher meaning behind the mm -hmm. <laughs> behind the way that this particular line or scene or whatever was was written so yeah i mean i think that's the way to under to understand it M maybe that's more useful is as a process rather than as like an author or two there is one production note i'd like to insert uh, uh jessica alba said that this is probably the like the nadir of her acting career she felt like this was when she was most on the verge of quitting acting and moving on to something else in her life uh and one of the reasons that this like it sounds like no one had fun making this movie, but one of her biggest complaints was that they had to read all of the dialogue exactly. They were not allowed to go off script. Uh, so ah. there probably is some relationship between uh, someone in the room, in the director's chair or whatever, thinking that the words in the script are actually <laughs> important. Uh, and it's not just like, well, now we're going to have a scene where they're angry at each other and who gives a shit. Now, Bester, the, the rest of us are, I think, firmly on record as being disgruntled about this movie, but you seem slightly gruntled, so would you like to... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't necessarily have a lot of opinions about the movie. I just... I uh, When I was done watching, it was like, okay, that was a kind of crummy movie, but, you know... It wasn't me. I've seen worse for, for this. Uh, and... Uh, you were not morally offended by it. I was not morally existence. offended. I did not think it was an abomination to use... Was that mm -hmm. Derek's or Patrick? Somebody called it an abomination. Derek called it, it an me. abomination. <laughs> Which, <laughs> you know, I didn't like the movie, but, you know, I mm -hmm. I didn't hate it either. It was, it was too boring to hate. I will but, say that yeah. uh, as much as I like some of the things about it, as I was watching it the first time, because I, I watched it one and three quarters <laughs> times, it was probably one of the worst film watching experiences of my life, and it completely <laughs> failed on the superficial level to entertain me in any way other than as something to academically analyze. Okay, so you went into a fugue state, and that's how this happened. <laughs> that's how what, and somebody, and somebody who last time explained how Mark Flinto, or no, Flint Marco, was a Jesus analog, you were just reading way too much into this movie. Well, I also uh, saw this when it was in theaters, and it oh was god-awful. Wow. Uh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Now, I, I do want to... Uh, I want to touch on two performances in particular here. Uh, mm -hmm. Beyond the ones that we have touched on already. Uh, the, the first is Andre Brower. And I, I want to bring him up for, for a couple reasons. One, uh, because he is playing the, the jockey general. And mm -hmm. when I think of Andre Brower, I typically think of him playing, you know fairly intellectual characters with a certain degree of moral complexity to them. You, you know, you think uh, Homicide Life on the Streets, or you think Glory, or you think, uh, I guess, men of a certain age, for those of you who mm -hmm. are of a certain age. <laughs> wow, TNT reference. Wow. Damn. Um, but in terms of all of the actors who are, who are wasted in this film, Andre Brower feels like the one who was the most wasted in this yeah. film. He, he is collecting he is a check. 
And he is acting in such a way that the subtext of every single line is, I am being wasted in this film. <laughs> like, in some ways, in some ways, it's the greatest performance in the film. <laughs> Well, because, I think I think yeah. that I, that Ian Griffold, I cannot ever say his name, but he's very pretty. Um, uh, he also seemed like in the same way that Andre Brower seems to be in in permanent eye roll in a way. I, it seems like Ian Griffin looks a little bit panicked the whole time, like like you know the kid without his homework. This movie is falling <laughs> apart around me, and I cannot hold it together. <laughs> And I just, I feel bad for him because I think that's, I mean, that's the trouble with Reed is that he's supposed to be, you know, a little bit absent-minded professor, but it he has to pull these, um, these turns that make, like, why suddenly is he dancing with two women after Johnny forces him into it? Like, why, like, why well, does he make these choices not? and he doesn't it get a chance to, like, change women. these things? There, I, I, I said, think there's a very distinct uh, interaction of... of the, what I would call the second and third plots happening here that is the reason that he actually has fun there for a minute. Um, uh, because he's it, away from his horrible fiance. <laughs> well, okay, he's yeah, just swinging that, loose, man! Because they're working with extremely stereotypical uh, tropes of the nagging wife and the, the like badgered husband. Uh, but the, it, the scene prior to this, actually, two scenes prior to the, uh, the bachelor party in the club, uh, you have. <laughs> wait, 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 Dooch, Dooch, say that phrase again for us, please. In the club. <laughs> you can use that as the tag for the uh, the episode if you oh, want. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, the the scene that you get is uh, Human Torch, or sorry, uh, Johnny Storm and Reed Richards uh, sitting at a a bank of computers or like a semicircle of computers. Uh, and they're they're each in a wheelie chair, and Reed is trying to get away from Human Torch and not listen to him uh, and do his own thing. And uh, Johnny is chasing him back and forth across the screen uh, in the chair and trying to get him to uh, agree to having a bachelor party and also to to pay more attention to Sue and to actually do you know like put stock in uh, what she wants uh, instead of always being caught up in work. And then he threatens Reed with saying, if you don't come to this bachelor party, if you don't, you know, interact with me and hang out with me in the way that I think is good for you and I think is actually fun, then I'm going to tell your wife and you're going to get in trouble. So then he, he's suddenly all for it. He's like, which all right, a, maybe I will go have some fun because I have to. Which is a damn sitcom plot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it is... I. I Regardless of whether it's done on purpose or it is an accident of uh, the the most perfect synthesis of cliche and trope that you have heard a dozen d- heard and seen a hundred times before, it is either a, a, a brilliant satire or an artifact so bad that it becomes brilliant because it thoroughly captures. It, it, this is like a zeitgeist film of terrible movies marketed glass, at teens because they they cast, as Lillian said, an extremely handsome man as the lead man. Uh, and a very attractive woman as the invisible woman, uh, and they they deliver the worst performances and have absolutely no chemistry with either each other or anyone else in the film. Uh, they just wanted a, a good-looking man and a good-looking woman to fill the role, and they, they chose a woman uh, who either inspired the writers 
to deliberately write a terrible, terrible misogynistic portrayal of, of a character who is not accurate to the comic books, or they're just so terrible that they're actually misogynists and thought this was a good portrayal of a characterized woman. Uh, so, regardless, you, you've got... Uh, yes. They, Johnny wants to take uh, the, the, the other two guys out to a bachelor party and have a good time. He gets them there, and they actually start to have a good time, but then work intrudes along with the nagging wife and the military, all three of your, like, uh, things that are barriers to read, uh, like, living a, a or uh, barriers Just to... Just getting down and funky with his stretchy yeah. self on the dance floor. Exactly. Exactly. The way that... The... The Sorry, way that he chooses to have t- to have fun to like the, the I will give points to to the writers on this because the most Reed Richards moment in the whole film is when he's sitting with all these gorgeous women mm-hmm. after he's dance you know yeah. before he dances with them and he's like explaining the Big Bang to them exactly and I'm like this this is Reed Richards this is the most Reed Richards thing I've seen in a really long time yep I will say uh, Derek then <laughs> Nick because we got we got to say the worst thing about that bachelor party scene, you know, like I think apart from the nagging wife uh, trope, uh, is the idea of Ian Griffith loosening up. To me, to me, yeah, he on a will always, level. To me, he will always be A and E's Horatio Hornblower, and so uh, I only see him as you know this just like prim yes, proper British lieutenant. So handsome. Uh, yeah, seeing him loosen up, weird. And the way, like, yeah, like you were saying, the way he loosens up, it's like the way someone in 1973 <laughs> would loosen up. Like, it's it's a weird yeah. kind of, just the way that he dances. And a guy with superpowers. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I think way too much of the humor in this movie is lowest common denominator physical use of their powers to do uh-huh. something kind of silly. The, the worst of which is when Sue traps Reed between two force fields yes. and smushes That's him. Great. That's great. You're wrong. As, uh. <laughs> no, as, as a feminist, I enjoyed that profoundly mm-hmm. and have decided that that is actually canon for the comics in general. Uh, yeah. uh, but these two scenes of the, uh, uh, the lead up to or the request for the bachelor party and conviction that it will actually happen uh, and the bachelor party itself are Johnny Storm trying to reach out to this this guy that he doesn't get to connect with very often, his you know soon-to-be brother-in-law, and not only help him have fun, but bring him into Johnny's world in it because he you know so a good bachelor party her, is designed uh, for the, the bachelor to have fun or you know the the fiance to have fun. This is a bachelor party that is designed for. Uh, Johnny to have fun. He's just doing, yes. you know, what he knows how to do, which is people have fun at the club. Uh, no, no, at, oh, sorry, at, at in the club. Duck, in the club. In, in the that club. was an amazing oh. Chris Evans impression. Spot on, spot on. And he, it, it actually starts to work, but then uh, the, the <laughs> job and the uh, fiance and the military all get in the way. No, I uh, want to so leave this bachelor party then, in the dust. Uh, again, has to spend, you know, continues to try to reach out to people through the entirety of the the rest of the first and the second act uh, before that conflict is resolved and it leads to them all working together to save the Silver Surfer and then the Earth. Now, to to bring it back around, Andre Brower... I'm, so, uh, I'm, I'm I sorry. Still but, thought, yes. I still have thoughts on this bachelor <laughs> so, party. We are not okay, but, but, best, best, <laughs> Bester, okay, get, keep... Fuck you keep, and talking about any other keep, part. Keep, keep, roll, keep rolling on this Tom Hanks train. 
Okay. Uh, weird reference. Uh, <laughs> it was a reference to Bachelor Party, goddammit. Oh, I thought it was a reference to the Polar Express. <laughs> the funny thing is, to me, it was a reference to news radio when they talk about the movie Bachelor Party. Because I don't know anything about Bachelor Party, except <laughs> having heard about it on news radio. I honestly couldn't figure out what was going on yes. there. All right. Anyway. So, uh, the, the, this sequence is clear. It, looking through my notes, definitely inspired the most amount of notes here. Uh, and it all has to do with an earlier scene. Oh, God. Where we see Reed Richards on his, uh, you know, a smartphone before smartphones really were a common thing. And it's clear that he is able to stretch out and have multiple thumbs. Mm-hmm. Which is terrifying! Gonna... Oh! It's terrifying! That's what he was doing. I thought he was just yeah. moving really fast because he didn't have to deal with his own bones. Okay, gotcha. No, my my impression was that he was generating <laughs> both, extra cells. Yeah, I'm with that. Okay, yeah, I you're probably right. We I have like these three three or four women macking on Reed Richards really hard. And let's really think about <laughs> yes. this. Set oh with God. Reed Richards would be mind-blowing. He could fuck all of those women so at Andre the Bauer. same time. He that could generate good. unheard of In the most terrifying hour. Yeah, I, I'm just gonna use the word movie, tentacles, and it's terrifying. This movie, this movie could have gone in like a Cronenberg's Crash kind of way, mm-hmm. and just to the most insane body horror sex imaginable. And that's and that's how I think that that's what my mind really was thinking rewriting. about while this movie was going on because there was nothing much else to think about. Oh, there's plenty. Are you kidding? <laughs> well, we can't all read it quite as much as you. Oh, I but, just think oh, about the um, sex possibilities. Now. Um, Andre, yes. Andre, Andre Brower. Brower. Andre Brower. Who would also be probably mind-blowing to have sex with. Also, about Andre Brower, <laughs> why is it funny to bring up men of a certain age? It's like the second most recent thing he's done. It's not as though it's an obscure show. I don't know. It, it's, I think it, it's just such... <laughs> if we think about our the cultural moment that we're in now, men of a certain age is so incongruent with what we have come to... <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It just. It always struck me as a silly. It just got a, a weirdly show. big laugh from everybody else, and I'm like, Yeah, I, he did that show a couple years ago. It was crazy acclaimed. People, <laughs> because old people watch TNT, yeah, it, and I love Rizzoli and Isles and its queer subtext. But TNT is an old people network, and I love it, and I'm really excited about Teen Titans. How desperate but, are we like, to not talk about this Men of a certain age was for men of a certain age. Well, yes. And it was so blatant in its men of a certain ageness. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never actually seen the show. Some of my friends watched. Really, it really you're like sixty. But... <laughs> yeah, I know. But I'm also like twelve, so you know, it just depends on which aspect I'm paying attention to at the time. Uh, so that evens uh, out to thirty-four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, I, I, the, the reason, Anywhere along the spectrum. The reason that I thought it that I thought it was. Uh, I don't know. There's something about the idea of a show that consists of Ray Romano, Scott Bakula, and Andre Brower sitting around and talking about being middle-aged that just strikes me as... as it's like a Beckett play. <laughs> I, uh, I don't even remember well, whether I some, laughed or not, but I... It seems like, Bester, from your delivery of con- the title, you were setting up the fact here, that, that you know, if you are of a certain age, so it sounded like that was a punchline in your list. 
So yeah, that's I assume the tail end of sort of the, you know, because like there's... Oh, okay, my mindset, Steph. You're better credit than that. I have no idea what anybody did anything in this Anyway, I mean, Andre Andre Brower in this film is like when they capture the Silver Surfer, they don't just sort of like start using harsh interrogation It's an actor without a character. They straight past asking questions and straight to the most horrific portrait. He was hired because he was Andre Brower. Like, there's just no stop. you know, with that comes a certain kind of persona. Right, no char- there was no underlying character for him to. What are you talking connect? about? Which he I, was I the think quarterback. Is... Yeah, I, I think that. So like. Yes. <laughs> I wish. Yep. But but my point is the that like years. this was like sort of like this sort of like eh, we're kind of sick of the Iraq War. There was sentiment turning against intense interrogation. <laughs> I think this is sort of like a vague sort of vague reach attempt to talk about that but because but because of like they, they didn't have any time to do anything with it it just doesn't go anywhere mm-hmm. yes in Siberia where they apparently have and an army base the the actor that they hired to do the torture is most recognizable from being the boss in Fight and Club Fight Club yes. who's you know uh, ostensibly an antagonist in that film as well. So is this all in Andre Brower's head? <laughs> My God. They were Andre all Brower Andre is Brower. Reed Richards. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I think so. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think you're you're very right about that. I mean, it's at the tail end of the Bush years, and I think it's really notable that when uh, Johnny falls into the Middle East and you see two Middle Eastern characters, they are there is nothing about them that is portrayed like politically. Stephen, it's entirely like second, the cliche uh, of two Bedouins in a desert, and then the joke in that scene is just the camel. The fact that there's a camel there and that he looks at a camel is the joke. Uh, and it, it seems like the I would like to talk to about Julian McMahon. Make this apolitical uh, in terms of how many different nations they're going to and how little they're really talking about, like the U.S. Like the, this general, who's ostensibly a U.S. general, most of his operations are outside of the U.S. They're in Germany. They're in Siberia. Uh, it, it's a threat to the world. They're just not acknowledging anyone else, you know, having any influence over their behavior, even though they're in, you know, London and. Uh, a variety of other nations. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there was. Um, although I, I feel like no, was it no, Evans? it was not Chris Evans at all. It was uh, everyone's, everyone's favorite dynamo of action, Julian McMahon. <laughs> because uh, Ju- Julian, yeah, Julian McMahon remains in-, in all of the films we have watched. He remains the worst cast person who then delivers the worst performance that he is asked for. I didn't think he could go lower than in the first film. And yet, I... and yet all he had to do was put on that Nazi coat and he was there. <laughs> oh god. I... Uh, that's the actor who played Doctor Doom. Uh played okay. is uh Yeah. Um <laughs> I would bet that there are at least two more scenes written for Doctor Doom that were left on the cutting room floor. Thank God. Cuz the first time the first time you see him is when he wakes up uh, in a box. He's in a box somewhere. Yes, he's in a box. And I think that is in between the request for the bachelor party and the bachelor party itself. Mm-hmm. And then so. there's the scene of him like being put back together or thawed out or something uh, by that, that worker uh, yeah. 
that's inserted very briefly. And then the next scene is him out on the ice with the Silver Surfer, correct? Yep. There's definitely a scene that was supposed to be between those two that, that would have him find information on the Silver Surfer or present some kind of motivation for something. But, but they the... either left it out for dramatic reasons, which I don't think that they're capable of doing, uh, if they were concerned about leaving it out for that reason, or they left it out because someone at the studio wanted this, to get this down to 90 minutes. Maybe they could have left it out because Julian McMahon's performance in that scene was so bad, they could have said, oh, we can't allow this yeah. in the film. To be yeah. fair. I was going to say... Yeah, along the lines of, you know, Patrick talking about historicizing this because it's 2007, um, we we talked a lot about this, of course, at Disneyland because it's appropriate line talk. Mm-hmm. Um, the, question, the question of why, why does Doctor Doom not work in this adaptation and why... Why is Doctor Doom here? Yeah, because why he's he a device <laughs> and he, he exists from the previous film. He's not a character. Well, but... And and the interesting thing is that like from like Pat Pat has a really interesting story to talk about, but I think just in general the funny thing to remember is that like when when Victor Von Doom was you know conceived, it was the early sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, despots were a very common comic trope in terms of villains. They were a very real historical reality. They were scary. Mm-hmm. They had their human rights abuses had very recently come to light mm-hmm. comparatively. And in 2007, um, the most recognizable dictator of a, in theory, smaller, you know, international power was a punchline on South Park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it's a different, it's a very different world. And like, and Pat can talk about sort of like what the defining things about, about Von Doom are. But I think what's funny is they, they, they never seem to address the his identity as a monarch, as as the well, king it, of Latveria, as the ruler of Latveria. In the context yeah. of these films, it, it doesn't matter. He he's a he's an industrialist. He's he's an an evil corporate guy. I would say that none of that matters in in this movie. The only thing that's important about him in this movie is that he's already been established in the previous film, so they don't have to spend any time because there are what twelve characters in this movie, and most of them are half. Or, Anyone beyond that is an extra. I, I'm including the guy who does the torturing. That's, that's my question. Why use him? Why use him then? There, there are other because um, it gives an opportunity. There are other minor industrialist uh, villains that they could the, have the used. Re- well, the reason is the reason is Galactus is a uh, a faceless space cloud, and the Silver mm-hmm. Surfer is not a villain. So if you're yeah. going to have a clear filmic antagonist, you know. You, you drop in the one that you don't have to do the setup on. Just and it gives uh, Mr. Fantastic an opportunity to be right at the expense of the general who, you know, represents the military and also the meathead. Uh, so yes. so that he's proven right as, like, the... And this is where, like, the, the scene between uh, when they actually define themselves in the most insulting obvious way possible as the nerd who worked hard and the quarterback who throws the ball and gets it to the end zone uh the, it's really creepy to me the the way uh the the aryan white guy stands like faces down the black guy who then like th- they're trying to decide who the boss of this situation is because reed is a consultant and the general is the military force and he's saying i'm the boss here and reed says no i'm the boss because i'm smart and have a hot wife 
uh, and I know what I'm doing, and you don't know what I'm doing. I know what you're doing, so since I know what you're doing, and I know what I'm doing, and you only know what you're doing, you're going to do what I say. Uh, and th so then he goes and does what he says, and there's, like, this really creepy, like, uh, you know, power dynamic that ends with the black guy, like, smiling at him and then uh, admitting that he's just a meathead and, and isn't intelligent enough to, to stand up to him, and then he just goes and does what he says. Uh, and... Well, and whether that's on purpose or not, I is think up to you. I, I think that's that's an interesting read. But from like from a using Victor as an antagonist rather than like he feels like a plot device because the way that he's behaving when he has the surfboard is so oh, yeah. eminently impractical f as as a villain. Because I mean, you live on Earth, bro. Mm -hmm. Like you Sorry, yeah, maybe I totally you'd want the there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. maybe you want to continue no to idea. have an Earth. Yeah, I don't think he does. I think well, they never they never tell you. He just wakes up and then he knows where the Silver Surfer is, and then he, he uh, then he's. This is the thing that most confuses me about this relationship is, and my girlfriend actually brought up this point. I should give her credit. Why does the military trust him? He's been established as a villain in the first film, but there's yes. no reason for them to go to him, other than he because... came to them and lied, and they believed him because they're idiots. And because the Fantastic Four just screwed up in London, so they're like, yeah. well, they're not doing it. Hey, here's this other guy. They didn't stop it. That was the second incident uh, where uh, uh, the Invisible Woman saved the day, and her credit is off screen. There is no mention at all of her having... It, the first is on the building during the wedding when ben, ben grabs the helicopter and he holds the blade against his face to stop it and then he breaks off the tail. He's, he swings and the body of the helicopter is gone because she's holding it in a force field and he's just holding the tail. But they, the body of the helicopter disappears. None of that happens on screen. And then again, she holds up the entire force field standing over nothing. Uh, or holds up the entire Ferris wheel, the London Eye, uh, and... They never acknowledge that she just saved the the day, and both times her reaction. They cut to her reaction, and she's upset about the wedding. Eric, <laughs> as someone who's getting ready to get married, do you have any? Uh... <laughs> no, it's. Uh... I can't remember what that came out of. Sorry, that was a different. I, I, I think it came out of Doom. And think about oh, yeah. it, Doom. if I may. The thing about Doom in this movie is that I mean, first of all, yeah, he he does not. He doesn't seem to have any discernible goal. Like, I've got no idea what he's going to do with the board. Oh, yeah. um, I've got no idea what he's going to do with this power or why he wants mm -hmm. it. I don't know if he's still an industrialist, if he's a monarch. I don't know what he wants to do at all. Well, um, but, like, the thing that... Uh, one thing that I kind of commented uh, about it was that, you know... And Lil corrected me. Was that I was kind of bugged by the fact that Julian McMahon was kind of intentionally having his voice, like, at a tenor level. Which is not really what you think of coming out of that face mask. Nope. Um, yes. Yeah. But the thing about it is, is that if you think about sort of a character, anytime you do an adaptation, you kind of have to pick what is the core nugget of that character. What's the most important thing about this character? Everything else has to mix and match. But you know, this this is where I make my stand. And the story that Lil is referring to is a story that Lynn Wein tells, um, famed comic book writer Lynn Wein, creator of among other things Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. um, he and possibly Man Thing. And possibly man thing. He liked things. Um, yeah. The, did he look the He did not. That was that was Dang Lee Kirby. But the story that he tells is like he's trying to explain what is the quintessential Doctor Doom moment, and it's it's in the Lee Kirby run about halfway through, and 
you know, the details are they were trapped in Doom's castle, and they get out, and they're kind of wandering around the castle, and they're being watched on a closed screen monitor by one of Doom's henchmen. And Doom's henchmen's about to press this button that will flood the room with some form of destructive science nonsense. Poison gas! <laughs> no, it's something that'll, like, actually destroy flood the room with physically danger and death. In, in the room. Um, okay. And he's about to press it, and suddenly he gets shot from behind. And he looks and he sees that Dr. Doom has entered the room and shot him. And, he, and he's like, you know, my lord, but I was about to destroy the Fantastic Four for you. Why did you do this? And Doom looks at the modern and says, look there. Look at those. Those are Picassos. Those are dynasties from three... Those are vases from three different dynasties in China. Paintings beyond... Treasures beyond, you know, price. I can destroy the Fantastic Four any day. But if I were to lose those treasures, humanity would be beyond worse for it. <laughs> and Doom has always been about this sort of dignity to the character. You know, he is... Well. He's many things, but he has always had this sort of, not necessarily gravitas, but there's a dignity and nobility to him. Well, thank God but, they you know, zeroed in on that for this film. I know, and that's my point, is that, like, this this guy is a plot device at best, and near the yeah. end, when he's, like, flying around on the board, ah you know, he's, yeah, he's, like, spouting lines that I literally described as, this is stuff the Green Goblin would say if he was getting his murder on. This isn't how yeah. Doom reacts. And, like, Doom also would probably be like, mm, yeah, I do kind of live on this planet. Should probably stop that. Mm. Uh, um, you, you yeah, mentioned I mean, earlier... I, oh, oh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier the voice, and that was definitely something that I noticed, particularly particularly before he, you know, dooms it up again at the very end, but when he's, like, in his, you know, cloak, talking with uh, the Silver Surfer in Antarctica? I don't know where the fuck they are. They just suddenly randomly yeah. there. Greenland. It's a calf. It's a it, polar calf. It really does not matter in any way. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you just have you just have whatever that man's name is. Uh, his voice coming out of that uh, that like very ominous cloak. And don't it's just, you it's understand? Right, it's just not the right voice at all. You need something booming and dark, and it's just you know the guy from Nip Tuck in there. Uh. <laughs> Uh, well, that's the thing is in Charmed, he's actually a baritone. I was trying to explain. I was like, I was trying to defend poor Julian McMahon. I yeah. was like, you don't understand. So it's so either sexy, a choice. So dangerous in Charmed. It's either a choice on his part or direction from the uh, the director. You think? Yep. Yeah. No. He. I mean, he read kind of like as to, you know, dude. I'm starting to fall into your theory again, as usually happens. Um, <laughs> don't do it. No. He, he no, kind of felt stop. like the the, the douchey the douchey friend from in a, in a college movie mm -hmm. you know like the, the, the guy that like i still hate you because college read <laughs> they that's ex i mean he's very honest the the relationship between dr doom and the fantastic four and the fantastic four and dr doom they are both very honest with each other all the time he says outright i don't like you uh i'm going to work <laughs> with the military and give them what they want when you won't and they say, we don't trust you. You shouldn't trust him. He's evil. And then when he betrays the, uh, the, the general, he openly acknowledges verbally that he is betraying him. Uh -oh. Yes. His response is, Reed is right, right before he kills Andre Bauer, which I was wondering, is that a roundabout Wall Street reference? Oh, speaking of roundabout <laughs> references... Did, oh God. I don't know. I, what, explain the roundabout Wall Street reference to me. Greed is I've good. Greed it. is right. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, it might be. Uh, uh, certainly, might... I liked the the Batman reference uh, when they 
they theorize that what what would we be called if it's just the two of us the dynamic duo uh like i mean that's a batman line like that that oh, I forgot about batman. that phrase does not exist outside we, of batman we, right we, we it's have, in culture now but from batman we are clutching at the straw that is breaking the camel's back like, this is... <laughs> I'm gonna I mean, find uh, out if the dynamic duo exists in any other I mean, context. My, uh, think, my favorite. Think... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I mean, I the... go, go ahead. Yeah. Derek. Okay, Lillian. Derek. Somebody. Anybody. Yeah, Lillian. Wrap up your point, and then Derek respond. Oh, just along the lines of the dynamic duo. I think, you know, I'm I'm trying to see if I was just you know reacting. I I had real issues with Johnny in this film. Um, I just think he was. Cause, cause the the ribbing the ribbing between him and the thing just started to get really cruel, um, and uncomfortable to me. Um, and I think that was my problem is that like, I mean, I love classic Fantastic Four, and one of the things that is great about it is that Johnny, you know, Johnny and Ben will give each other crap, but you know, if you if anybody else insults you know Johnny Storm in front of Ben Grimm, it, it is clobbering time. That's how it works, and it. Like, you know, the comments about Alicia and the comments of, like, talking about his sperm and stuff, it just, it felt very, yeah. like, it, it walked an ableist line. It, especially, you know, the blind girl line, like, oh. and it didn't feel, it just, maybe just, you know, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I was like, <laughs> Captain America, can you stop insulting blind girls, please? Like, can, can we just stop? Okay. Yay. Would you say that, that those jokes are almost a pastiche of their entire relationship? Oh, my uh, God. That, that, like, cause <laughs> the, the, the thing that bothers me about the penis joke is that it doesn't make sense to be in this film. It would fit in the first film because that's the kind of thing that the Human Torch is going to say to, say to uh, the thing within ten minutes of him turning into a rock monster. Uh, yeah. If he's, no, I mean, I think... I lose the I lose the pastiche moment just because it was so cruel. Well, I think I, that, I just I was struck by. I think that it's deliberately placed at the beginning of the film uh, as an as an example of like him going too far because the the scene where they're in the bar together they're actually relating to each other as humans they have things to say like they're they're really concerned about what's going to happen uh, if these two do go off on their own but then when they've stopped the Ferris wheel from collapsing uh, and. Johnny wants to go and touch one of the other team members, but Reed yells at him, like, uh, says, no, don't do that. And you can see that Johnny's actually hurt because uh -huh. he's being forced away from the rest of his team. And the thing looks at him, and he, he actually sees this happening. He understands, but then his eyes shift to the right, and he sees that there's the giant hole in the, the ground that the Thames has entirely drained, and they move on to that. So he doesn't get a chance to support him, but you actually do see it happen on screen, that they're relating to each other. So there is some subtlety to that character relationship, and I think this is evidence that the, the initial terrible joke was just to define how awful uh, Johnny is at the beginning so that he can grow later. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, mean, I guess here's the thing. Sorry? Go, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Here's the thing, I think this is maybe what Lillian and I are trying to say, is that you're not wrong that there's not sort of like an intended arc there, but Johnny's awfulness in the beginning of the movie is so severe that, like, if he were my friend, I would not be interested in trying to help him out or trying to relate to him. Like, if he had said, like, Lillian is one of my closest friends in the world. If she was saying anything like Johnny was saying about me and my relationships, 
Like, Lil, I love you to death, but Jesus. I, I'm actually maybe maybe this is just differences in in opinion, but I I'm actually gonna go the other way on this. I, I think, yeah, Johnny's being a dickhead. Um, I think he is contextualized quite a bit as a dickhead. Yeah. But yeah. the the stuff that he is saying, it is in poor taste, and it offends me as a writer. Mm-hmm. But I, yes. I, I think to to take deep offense to the stuff that he's saying is is not necessarily warranted. It's a poorly written line in a script that is ostensibly calibrated for broad appeal, and it misses. Um, I think, but that, I, I don't I don't watch well, it and say, "Oh my God, Johnny's an irredeemable person." I, I don't. I think, think that's that uh, it's. I feel like it's pretty true to like macho guy ribbing yeah. like i mean that's the kind of joke that my friends and i would toss around like totally. back in high school you know where you, you just you're trying to the, the measure of like how much fun you're having is how good you are at cutting the other person down and you don't take it seriously yeah. but the the portrayal of the thing in this is as uh the the gentlest character uh that that he you know and that's like the the you know, the irony of the thing is that he is tough on the outside, but just wants to be soft and have a soft ro- romantic relationship. The, the only, uh, like, truly torturous, cruel thing that happens between the two of them in the film is when the thing touches Johnny to make him into a horrifying <laughs> rock monster, and then Johnny yeah. shrugs and says, no, I'm not the rock monster, and smacks him back and makes him the horrifying rock monster. It's like, no, no, I'm not, this of, wasn't wait, was the that... power that God gave me, this is the curse that God gave you. <laughs> Was was that actually Chris Evans in the thing makeup, or was it a different actor? Because it felt like a different actor. Oh, I thought it looked exactly like Chris him. Evans yeah, as the thing. Been, yeah. It looked yeah, as it much like Chris Evans like, as the thing looks, looks so like Michael strange. Chiklis. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my favorite part about that scene is that he has hair. <laughs> no, Michael Chiklis is a horrible <laughs> rock monster. My favorite. Well, I think. I mean, if, if one one, I think one testament though to um, just Chris Evans in general is the fact that he could come out of this and, like, give the performance that he gives his Captain yeah, America. Fine. Oh, well, I think his performance here is great. That one of the reasons that you dislike him so much, Lillian and Patrick, is that he's actually delivering a really good performance of the Human Torch. Michael Chiklis does the same thing. And, uh, or not of the, the Human Torch, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, uh, great uh, human torch for a little bit there. <laughs> and it's it's easy to say that uh, Jessica Alba is a terrible actress or that the the lead actor is a terrible actor, but... I think that no one in this film is given anything to work with, yeah. and no. they are performing at the level that is asked of them. But Chris Evans and Michael Chiklis are performing well beyond that in and, actual, and like, to, to be, really high-quality acting. Those two are probably the ones who are given the most to work with. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, I, th- I, I think that's the big thing to remember, yeah, but, is that, you know, as an audience huh? surrogate, like, I think that's the thing about Johnny is that because he's the closest to the audiences, the projected audience's age, um, there there's more room for his emotional arc, um, and and there is more room for his dynamic with with Ben because Sue has nothing to do. Like Sue exists to antagonize Reed and vice versa. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> that Reed... Reed is given a lot, and it's just poorly delivered and. I, I don't think that he does a good job with it. I don't actually think that Michael so Chiklis nice. was given very much at all, and he does a lot with nothing. Because yeah, no, he has no motivation in this. Well, he's, he's just there to support the other characters. Something that we haven't even talked about is that, that power switching and the fact that, you know, 
just from a you know looking at it from a disability perspective the fact that you know ben ben's quote-unquote great tragedy is you know the sort of the dysmorphia that he has about the way that he looks and how <laughs> he wishes he you know looked like michael chiklis instead of being the thing and i don't know this, i might rather one of those he opportunities. Yeah. and he's, he doesn't it's not present in this yeah film he doesn't because, weep when he's turned back into a yeah. rock monster yeah i think they just well, get no, a chance but, to but, make but, light of it but I think that, you know, what Michael Chiklis plays in that kitchen scene, which is, again, you know, c- commending Evans and Chiklis, is that there is this moment of, like, I could not be a rock monster for a little while. Yeah. I'm totally going to do that. I mean, he's excited <laughs> in a nostalgic way, but he doesn't care anymore because he's found a woman who actually loves him. So so yes. th- that uh, that journey for him is already completed. Although I don't think you even see them together in this movie, do you? No, they, uh, they're, they're Alicia hugging. Masters only exists to be, like, lead or, you know, maid of honor for... Sue Storm. She <laughs> she she fixes his tie. Yeah, kind of oh, okay. There's a lot of really bad in this movie. Yeah, she's at the wedding. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. my favorite. There's a lot of really awful blind acting in this movie, just oh. in terms of like, oh. there's no there's no mobility. You know, there's no mobility measures that she takes. Like, yeah. She. I just maybe it's just because Daredevil just came out, but I'm sitting here being like, there are ways to handle this that make you look like you have your stuff more together. Just than put a pair do. of sunglasses Again. on. Her. <laughs> She's not yeah. a character. She's just a device. Yeah. I feel like there's actually only five characters in this movie. It's the, the main. Given. Well, I would e- I would even say the thing probably isn't really a character. Uh, that you've got uh, Reed, Sue, Johnny, and the Silver Surfer, uh, and then you've mm-hmm. got some some mock-ups of other characters: the General and Captain Frankie, uh, the the woman that Johnny's interested when you, in. When so, you said uh, Captain Frankie, I immediately yeah. imagined uh, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein monster in that role. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been better. Yes. But, uh, I ship it so hard. So, that would be so amazing talk- if uh, Johnny fell in love with the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> Just while we're on the power switching thing, the best part about when Chris Evans takes the uh, the thing's power is that he still has Chris Evans's hair, which means that the thing is only bald because Michael Chiklis is bald and shaves his head. <laughs> ben Grant, sorry. <laughs> Yes. So, to, uh, to kind of talk, talk very briefly about the Silver Surfer, and I kind of want to touch on something we yeah, talked about Yeah, he's supposed earlier, to be rising we, in this film. Yeah. He doesn't really rise. <laughs> you know, the thing about this movie is, like, we've been, like, there's a lot of, like, terrible inter-family stuff we're picking apart, but, like, mm-hmm. Galactus is um, arguably the Fantastic Four's sort of most famous single issue was Galactus. And he okay. introduced sort of the weirdo Marvel cosmic universe, which... Uh, as of which, as any spoiler alert, as of Age of Ultron, they're just sort of starting to poke their heads into. And you know, Galact- Marvel Cosmic can get really weird. You know, you have entities like um, Eternity, who is literally all of space, Infinity, Howard the Duck, all of time. Um, you have Howard the, the Celestials. Yeah. You have the Collector. The hang on, the Collector. There's the um, Beyonder. There's Madam Order, Madam, uh, Lord Chaos, there's Lady Death, who, by the way, when they talk about Thanos courting death, that's actually mm-hmm. not a metaphor. He actually bones Literal. death. Now, yeah. is there, um, do, are there other galactic characters that we can take and just take, well, like, a noun and then add, or an adjective and then add er or us to? <laughs> Beyonder. Yes. That is mostly, yes. that is the go-to Marvel cosmic universe naming uh, thing. I mean, remember, I joked that Death I was the living tribunal. As long as there's some alliteration. Um, watcher. The watcher. <laughs> but the thing about Galactus is that, you know, they all kind of share this sort of, like, you know, Ultimately, what I think the biggest macro problem of the Fantastic Four movies in general up to this point has been, except for maybe the 1994 one, 
is that I think ultimately they are kind of afraid of their own concept. Because afraid of the what? Fantastic Four, they're afraid of the, the concept that they have. Because oh, the Fantastic yeah. Four is easily the most 60s, goofy, uh, Jack Kirby y thing that Marvel has ever produced. I and, well, know, kind of disagree. I, I think they embrace it, the, yeah. the family elements to this. Well, no, not, fa- not the family element. Oh, okay. I'm talking about I'm, I'm the exploratory go- sort of science nonsense element because that's Galactus. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, I'm it wasn't the family. I mean, as a fantastic well, because Galactus as a cloud means that he can't be talked to, he cannot mm-hmm. be used as a force, which basically removes him from yes. interacting with yeah, the movie he's, at all. He's, exactly. He's Vigor. Because he's not, the pr- he's not the villain. Right, and so the Silver Surfer barely has any lines. Like, I'm pretty sure I don't think the Silver Surfer is the villain either. Right, but because of this, they have to fill so much space with so much nonsense mm-hmm. that there's just there's no way for it to be good because it's literally no. we're literally just wasting well, time th- and dicking around there was, around totally, there the was totally a way for it to be good all they had to do was make him a yes. giant man in a purple suit and have him <laughs> proclaim loudly that he was the eater of worlds and people would have been fine it's, we, we can swallow fucking Howard the Duck or that talking raccoon we can swallow a giant eater of worlds with a purple helmet the thing, give though, the audience that- some credit the Galactus is intrinsically a ridiculous concept exactly. because he is heralded by a man on a silver surfboard. <laughs> so either you oh, lean into that or you don't do it, but if you half-ass it, as you yeah. al- as always happens, it's gonna look bad. Yeah, you so either you have to it, lean true. into the ridiculousness or just never use it because if you just half-ass it like they did, it's I, gonna be not gonna work. I think, According- I think that what we're seeing actually is a movie where they try to sidestep the ridiculous aspects of it and the... They embrace the idea of Fantastic Four as the family of superheroes. The, all of the the struggles in this movie are them getting along. They are just trying to get along so that they can work together to solve the problem. Uh, the the entire first act uh, is uh, let's see the act one I would say ends with the Human Torch in space after uh, like it's the beginning of the power switching stuff yep. uh, when. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the problem is the wedding, and now we have the entry of like the supposed villain of the Silver Surfer, um, uh, and the suggestion. Oh, that's the other thing is that uh, right at that moment, but before he loses his powers, is when uh, Reed and Sue have discussed going off on their own after they get married and breaking up the family. Uh, uh, that's when you you get the. That's one of the other complications at the end of Act One. Act Two is uh, the dysfunction <clears throat> in powers and relationships, and ends with the capture of the Silver Surfer. And it's also the moment when uh, Von Doom reveals that he's the, you know, he is the device antagonist, mm-hmm. uh, the visual antagonist, since we don't have one now, uh, since the Silver Surfer has been proved to be a good guy. Uh, and Act Three is them working together. To help the Silver Surfer, who was previously the bad guy, you find out that the military is actually working against the Earth by accident uh, because they're listening to Von Doom uh, so that they can then convince the Silver Surfer that there is value on Earth and he needs to work against his own colonial master uh, uh, and uh, destroy him. Speaking of, I have like a more, I don't know if it's a moral quandary or a plot hole question, but... Just from a, from a thematic perspective, you know, Nor- Norrin and Sue have these conversations about, um, you know, the reason the reason I'm helping him, the reason I let him destroy other worlds is that it protects my own, it protects, mm-hmm. you know, the woman I love. Yeah. Well, you and... happen to look like, so I'll save this planet too! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> She's um, just a stand-in for so, all women you thing, could possibly thing... love. 
Yeah, so the, the, thing, the thing about that conversation, though, is that what they talk about doing is that the, the surfboard itself is a beacon, right? So they want to send the beacon away mm-hmm. from Earth so that Galactus will go in another direction. Yes. And I'm sitting there being like, wait, 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 but where is Galactus going to go? Like, like you haven't actually defeated Galactus. No. Somewhere else. No, Doesn't they're matter. just trying to sidestep <laughs> the problem. Somewhere else that Sue isn't. Because they don't have a solution. They don't know what to do. They have to enlist the Silver Surfer to help them. Uh, and and that's the the actual antagonist of this film is not a physical being at all. It's the concept of not working together, and that is overcome when they decide to work together and then immediately reacquire the MacGuffin, now, uh, the the surfboard, which is then used to uh, somehow counteract. It's like the antimatter to Galactus, I guess, and destroys him. Lillian, Lillian's question actually makes me wonder. Does Galactus devour Saturn in this film? Because <laughs> there's that true. shot. I think that's the shadow of of the, that his cloud casts on Saturn. I think no, he's he passing between the sun. Okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But yes, maybe he, in the canonical can... Fantastic Four universe, there is no Saturn anymore. No, I I am <laughs> yes. going to dispute the idea that the surfboard is the MacGuffin because I am going to argue that the entire film is a MacGuffin, insofar okay. as it is ostensibly something that we all should want for nebulous reasons. <laughs> and while we were watching it, I don't know, maybe like people who went and saw this in theaters, there was a, a sneaky little bandit who was moving around and stealing their wallets, but we have all certainly lost time for this film. We, I mean, we the, all only have a, certain, about it. We have a certain number of days to live, a certain number of hours that are ticking away, and yeah. we were Yeah, but this, only, this is only 92 minutes. That's what, not that bad. What could you yeah, have done? We could have wasted the, much more of our time. We just got P.T. barnum that's all. I mean, you just have to admit yeah. that you paid to see a really terrible movie, and now you have to leave and live with that for the rest of your <laughs> I life. I paid nothing. <laughs> Uh, I'm saying that Working myself the industry, as a theater goer, we are not saying anything. But butts and seats, butts and seats. I wanted to go back to uh, Juju's point about how, like, the moral of the story is all working together, because mm-hmm. it's then somewhat ironic that the solution is that everyone pour their powers into Johnny so that Johnny. he alone can save the day. He can work yes. together the most. Uh, I... <laughs> also, also, how does he still have his fire powers? Shouldn't all three of them now be I the human torch and he yes. be a combination of three of the and Fantastic what could they Four have done as opposed to being the super human torches? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, mean, I didn't get a chance to rewatch the last quarter of the film, uh, which is when I was trying to parse down these specific character arcs and relationships. I think there is something to be... I think that Johnny overcame something and agrees to like yes. work together with other people at that point, it's, it's but I don't script. remember what the specific motivation is. Uh, Speaking yes, of which, obviously. I do not remember what happens to Doctor Doom. I was too busy looking up the Super Scroll or the Super Crawl. Uh, I did the same the thing. Fuck its name is called. He gets. Uh, he gets so, like, I just looked up and I just looked up and like, bay. oh, Doctor Doom's done. Uh, I don't know what happened. This is a, a crucial point in in the Marvel uh, or in this movie because it is another another production studio including a device that was used in the previous Marvel film that we watched, Spider-Man 3, which was something that is in far too many films, a giant crane holding a bunch of girders. Uh, <laughs> the thing hits, hits yes, Dr. Doom with girder. the girders, and he is thrown into the bay. And it's not the thing, sorry, it's Ben Grimm. He's no longer yep. the thing. He climbs in and says, I've got your back, or something equally uh, useless and analogous, uh, and I mean, slams him with the girders, and he flies away. And drowns okay. in the bay, yes. presumably, because he can't yes. swim in that so, freaking arm. Because he's covered in metal. <laughs> 
I mean, he's unless anyone. He's not covered in metal, though. He's just Julian McMahon. <laughs> and I mean, how many films go out of their way to make their villain less menacing in the sequel? And the first one, he was kind of horrible. He's not the villain. He's just a device. I, I Patrick, felt like what were there you was a lot of. Sorry, Lily. There was a lot of lady fan service in this movie, which I appreciated. Like we get some, we get some Chris Evans. We. Yeah, we do. We, to make up for the complete lack Julian of female McMahon's character. Chico. You get some Michael Chiklis. <laughs> I will say, yes, I will say they missed a very odd moment for potential uh, fan service because at the wedding, the first wedding, the aborted one, uh, uh, Johnny clearly does not want to flame on because he's wearing his Dolce suit. But he has come prepared with the uh, Johnny suit underneath it because when mm. he ceases to flame on, he is not nude. Yes. And you could have just had a new, a tastefully nude uh, Chris Evans rolling through uh, the desert, and you know, having a I, sexy time with that camel. I have a question, uh, Patrick. You're probably Silver best to Server. field this because you seem yes. to know the most about the Fantastic Four universe, or possibly just the last film. Um, yeah. The twice in this movie we see Johnny burst into flame before he says, or start to burn before he says "flame on." I thought that saying "flame on" was the only thing that would trigger him. Like the the external fire. No, flame on is literally just something he says. Okay, I thought it's, it's right. branding. Right. I, I think I think it's it's kind of like like it was started as a training thing. It was like I know how this works. Yeah. I'm going to tell myself to flame. I thought it was like the psychological <laughs> switch that it becomes attached to, and he has to say it. Um, you know, in order to harness like the focus, the way that oh. you know, I like uh, used to be that way. Not really. Okay. These days, he'll just flame on. Okay. All right. I like the idea that it's branding, though, because you know the keyboard yeah. people were very insistent that he have yep. a catchphrase. Because yeah. keyboard sponsors him, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the Hemi. I loved uh, on the it's got on a, a personal note. I love that uh, one of the many dated things about this movie is the the scene inside of a Circuit City. <laughs> Yeah, yes. <laughs> as a former Wait, which employee. Which scene was in a Circuit City? I don't even remember that. It's right in the. It's in the opening of the film. I think there's like some uh, some footage on a TV it, that people are seeing something awful happen, and they're inside a Circuit City. I missed that. Uh, it's like a, I think it's in the first ten minutes. Blink and you miss it. Um, yeah. But uh, like Circuit City. <laughs> hey, so, it was an electronics giant for like fifteen years, twenty years. So, anyway, as I. As I gently push us to wrap up, because I am starting to personally lose some I was, was going to say, may, maybe, now, I know we all have well, a lot of things to continue saying about this film, but we've been talking about this film for significantly longer than the film's running time, and I don't think this film that, deserves that. We do that, that. almost every and movie. I think that it does. No. Wait till we get to my best and worst lines. Okay, so... But Patrick, uh, you were trying to say something about uh, what happens to Doom and Ben Grimm and the Thing at the time. Oh, I don't remember. I, what I think I was going to say was was that, you know, because I kind of wanted to push us to wrapping up. Okay. Because um, I'm kind of hungry and yeah, tired. Yeah, fair enough. Is that... You know, I got to finish my copy of You know, lo looking at this as, you know, kind of an artifact of the context was that you know, this was just after Spider-Man 3. Mm -hmm. And this was the before we hit not just Iron Man, but, you know, the Dark Knight. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, Stefan refers to this as sort of the end of the dark times. Um, and I would argue we've got we do still have the Wolverine uh, X Men Origins Wolverine. Mm -hmm. When I when I refer to this as the end of the dark times, I mean the end of the stretch of consistently awful films we've watched. Well, that's what <laughs> I kind of my point is. What about Man Thing? It's it's kind of interesting to look at because I do wonder if if the next very next year we had not gotten the Dark Knight, the one-two punch of Iron Man and the Dark Knight, 
you know, would would we basically have just would the superhero craze have just fizzled out? Because I think like if, you know, you talk so. about this as sort of like a process, you know, it's like sort of like these almost it's almost a parody of the terrible superhero movie. Yeah. Like you know, I, I think you're kind of stretching to say that any, there's any authorial intent there. Yeah. But I do see what you mean because it's like this is the very end nadir of like uh, years and years and years of sort of the dumbing down of these movies. And it's sort of like, you know, in one last glorious burst of terribleness, you know, do we end this, find this long slog, and we suddenly start with The Dark Knight and Iron Man what we now think of as the modern age of superhero films. Well, I would say that there is a, a very deliberate change in the... Er, er, um, there's a change in the approach to making a superhero film that the studios uh, obviously went through. In that, I would say this is probably the last one with... I mean, I haven't seen every movie on the list, but this is a movie where they don't care about making a good movie. They're not putting money into script. They're not worried about... Uh, like, the things that make a classic long-term film that people come back to. They're worried about making a summer blockbuster uh, because and making the things from the Fantastic Four pages appear on the screen. They're making a very shallow movie with two-dimensional characters uh, that uses nothing but bad tropes. Uh, they, no one in this movie exists in a real world. Even the, like you guys talked about, the, the fact that they're celebrities, that's only true when they need them to be celebrities. Uh, when they don't need it, it's not, that they're not, you know, uh, ben and, and Johnny aren't in the bar, like, having to fight off people who want to play darts with them or buy them rounds. Like, it's convenient for them to have this quiet, uh, kind of intimate friend conversation so no one else in the bar hassles them. Uh, but any other time that someone steps on the street and they need Reed Richards to blend into a crowd while uh, uh, Sue Storm is suddenly on fire and flying uh, and having to deal with, you know, being naked again, then he's in a crowd. Uh, he's just one person in a crowd. But, dude, how would those people in the bar know that Ben Grimm is the thing? <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, he was wearing That's another thing I said while I was watching this. I was like, he is argu arguably the most recognizable person on the planet. <laughs> on on yes. that note, let, let's move to our final thoughts because I, I'm... Uh, this, uh, Christ. <sighs> um, All right, who, uh, before do, final thoughts? No, no, dude, your, uh, your quotes are going to be a part of final thoughts. Okay, before final thoughts, though, uh, a reference to the, the discussion of the bear. I think that the bear is actually a... Uh, Why? It's, it's a metaphor for capitalism. No. <laughs> it's a reference to the old, me, the old book and TV sh show and made-for-TV movies, Gentle Ben. Because Ben Grimm is the gentlest character in, in the, the movie. Uh, and No, Ben, no. <laughs> Yes, exactly. He is Gentle Ben. A bear appears, and and uh, not only is the thing more gentle than him, but he's more fierce. He can scare him away with his yell. Oh, my God. The, whoever whoever you, wrote dude. that scene was making a joke about Gentle Ben. I guarantee. Author intent is so tricky. So very, very tricky. Okay, I, I can't I can't guarantee it, but I, I will say that there is no other reason for that to happen. I think, I'm with Bester. <laughs> I think it's a reference to uh, the bear in the wood uh, metaphor about communism. It's, it's the, what, what, that, that what seems country, in Germany, though. What, it's not in yeah, Siberia. Yeah, but what country is not in this film? Fucking Russia's not in this film. They go to Siberia. Siberia is Russia. You know oh, they that, did, right? Oh, they did go to Siberia. They take, That's true. They, they, I forgot they went to Siberia. This is in Germany, and then they go to Russia to torture 
uh, t- for the military to torture the Silver Surfer for no reason. I'd forgotten they went to Siberia. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Because how could you forget that? I brought it up like eight times. <laughs> yeah, but it's this it's film okay. kind of washes over any long term memories of this movie. So, final thoughts, so we can stop talking about this, So we can please. never think about a Fantastic Four movie until we eventually get to the new one. Patrick, you start. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, you know, I often wonder about the Fantastic Four, and I'll tell you that, like, sometimes when Lily and I are bored um, and we have a deadline that we're ignoring, we'll sometimes do takes on movies on comic book properties to see what we would do. We've done uh, one for Wonder Woman, we've done for one for Black Widow. You know, we've done a couple of them, you know, just kind of as an intellectual exercise. And one thing we've talked about with the Fantastic Four is that, you know, aside from the Punisher, they are one of the most hard to modernize um, franchises out there because they are so 60s. Just every part of them is, it drips with the 60s. And much the same way Frank like just like it's hard to make him exist outside of like seventies hellhole New York, and like, and I don't hold you know the difficulty of adaptation against them. You know, Lord knows I've, I I hope to be there one day, and I can't. I don't want to like sort of take to task what one day may be the same problems Lillian and I have to face, but even when I take into an account sort of like I don't know what the process of this movie was I don't know what you know horrible trials the filmmakers had to go through to get it made or what studio interference there was this movie was one of the most painful I had to watch like I just very actively did not want to have to sit through this which is ironic because Lil and I have been gone from the podcast for a while and then we come back and I have to watch this take that uh (laughs) <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That'll teach funny. you to be gone. <laughs> I, and I guess that's just sort of the thing about it was that, you know, I, I've i had differences of opinion with people about Marvel movies in the past. I will have in the future. I've seen Marvel movies that weren't my cup of tea that I just accepted that maybe I don't get the appeal of and vice versa. This movie wasn't just bad. It was boringly bad. Like, nothing yeah. was going on that I cared about. I think that was maybe, it, ultimately, that was its, that is its ultimate sin, is not necessarily all the stuff we've been talking about, although the misogyny really hurts, is that it was all that and it was boring. I couldn't even make fun of it. I just wanted it to be over. I'd agree with that. I, I think it was a very boring movie until I started, like, trying to see what I think they were trying to do. Um, but, I, yeah, I think there's... Uh, the misogyny is awful. The, there are a lot of racial undertones that I'm very uncomfortable with. There's the, the colonial aspects to it, uh, as well as the the underestimation of what uh, the the target audience or like teenagers or uh, whoever Johnny Storm represents are capable of. Uh, I think that some of the best parts of the movie are are way underplayed. The relationship between uh, Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters uh, is basically absent, um, but. Uh, as I said earlier, I feel like that was kind of addressed in the first film, so it didn't need to be, because this movie wasn't about that. It was about the, I think, the family aspects. Um, but uh, that was all just responding to you. I have different closing comments to make, so uh, someone else can go while I gather them. Uh, Bester, your, your closing thoughts. Just move on. All right. So I'm just looking through my notes, trying to figure out what my lingering questions about this movie are. Uh, first of all, um, why are they getting married in Japan? Yep. And more importantly, who are all of these Japanese people at their wedding? 
because they invite Alicia and Brian Passane, the preacher. They seem to be the only people that invited from America to their wedding. They and didn't invite Stan random, Lee. <laughs> and then 50 random uh, Japanese people. And they should have invited Stan Lee because Stan Lee got yeah. turned away at their first wedding. It would have been very considerate of them <laughs> yeah. to say, you know what, we're going to have a small ceremony. You're going to be one of the only people there. Come, Stan. Mm-hmm. We love you. Uh, but but um, don't bring Jack so, Kirby. Don't bring Jack Kirby, no. No, don't do that. That's something um, I wanted to mention earlier. He, he is dead, so he would be a corpse and not necessarily a very <laughs> no, good no wedding excuse. No uh, excuse. So yeah, there's just randomly like 50 Japanese people at their wedding. They have no lines. They're not really acknowledged in any way. It's just kind of weird. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is we talked earlier about sort of how international this movie is. Uh, the thing that really struck me is that uh, the, the writers have no sense of how large the earth is. Uh, everything yeah. is remarkably close to each other. So we talked. Yeah. I, we, I think we mentioned. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that like within within a cut that through like just how we're sort of conditioned to read these kind of cuts makes it seem like it's pretty much right next to each other. They go from being on the outskirts of New York to being at the Washington Monument. Uh, but then there's also right at the very end where they're chasing um, chasing Doom. They go from being in Siberia to suddenly they're at the Great Wall of China, yep. and they all try to attack Doctor Doom, and he does like a little spin move on his surfboard because he's extreme like that, and he manages to blow them into downtown China, uh, which is the best way to describe <laughs> the set that they're China. in, right? Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> which is the best way to describe the very obvious set that they're on, downtown China. Which I don't know the exact geography of uh, of the Great Wall of China, but I'm pretty sure it's not near any particularly large urban areas. Uh, it's dr- I don't it's, know if it's could... reason- Parts of it are within a couple hours drive of Beijing. But that's, okay. that's still an absurd drive, distance though. to cover. Yeah, exactly. So they're being flung hundreds of miles? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and, you know, just everything just seems to... There's no sense of, you know... How this world fits together. This world that is us. Oh, speaking of worlds, one other lingering question I had. Uh, how does Reed have those pictures of the surface of the exoplanets that Galactus has destroyed? Science. We don't, we don't have Science. pictures of he the surface those trails. of exoplanets. Science. He we backtracked the trails. Science. Yeah. Reed backtracked Science the trail. is like... <laughs> Read just sciences and then exactly. It's- I know. That, and, all and he does is makes, science. The movie makes no effort to like even attempt to explain I, the I've, science. I've got, like he's I've doing got that. your no. explanation. No, I've got your explanation yeah. right here. Go ahead. The, the explanation is very simple. Uh, Voyager six was shot into. <laughs> Takes these pictures, gains sentience, comes back as a in, giant in- space cloud <laughs> called Galactus. And uh, okay. is just trying to to report its data. Where okay. nomad Stephen, has gone before. your read before. is showing, dear. Yes. Um, yeah. And but 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 then the follow up line once he's established that he somehow has surface shots of exoplanets uh, is he just declares that the little holes, the giant holes that uh, mm-hmm. are being born into the Earth, are following a numerical sequence, and the next number in the sequence. Science. And then he just sort of patiently waits for a computer without explaining what the sequence is in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like I had one other... Uh, I, I mean, the, the corollary to that is, Reed Richards is often a font of bullshit science. He, is the, uh, he has never been more bullshit science than in this movie. Ah, yeah. I remember... I remember now what my last one was. Uh, I was reading, I can't remember if it was on IMDb or Wikipedia for this uh, site, 
but uh, that apparently there was some idea that there was going to be a Silver Surfer spinoff and that they were saving Galactus for that. That's why oh. they didn't show Galactus, which is both a stupid idea and also incredibly optimistic that like, oh yeah, we're totally going to spin off a uh, Silver Surfer uh, thing. People are not going to be able to get enough of his exposition abs. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I would say that probably the best example of when Reed is sciencing is when it, it's the actual wedding, the build-up to the wedding, and Ben comes in to to get him, and Reed is busy sciencing, and Ben reminds him that he has to wedding now. It's wedding time. And he actually <laughs> says, oh, I'm getting married. Like, he's suddenly focused on it, like a child who remembers yeah. that it's he did his homework, it's time for a cupcake. Uh, I would say I would say maximum sciencing is when when uh, Sue says something about uh, hit a pulse and he goes pulse a well, tachyon pulse. I actually I want to talk about that because that is a, a really interesting scene with Sue. Uh, that's one of my notes before I do my final wrap up. All right, all right, so, okay. Lillian, you you give your final thoughts we, as we approach as Dude prepares his uh, his thesis. His, <laughs> okay. His closing um, remarks, which apparently will be quite impressive. <laughs> Final thoughts. Um, I I think my biggest, the big thing that I pulled away from this because I am sort of weirdly nostalgically attached to the the Lee Kirby version of these characters is that it it you know repeating what people have said it felt like a cash grab, um, mm-hmm. and I <laughs> I take it back to Goyer a second again because I think that. You know, making a movie when you have contempt for your audience um, <laughs> feels, in in a lot of ways, a disservice to the creator themselves um, out of fear, and it and it feels a lot like like you're afraid to fail. You you want to blame the material for the fact that you can't find a way to fall in love with this. And I think you know it it is a business. It's totally a business. Uh, Marvel Comics was a business. Marvel Comics dominated a market by loving what they were doing, even though it was heavy on the adjectives and heavy on the weirdness. And I think there's something profoundly sad about this movie in a lot of ways, because it takes a property that was about, you know, the love of exploration and the how hard it is to be a modern different kind of family (laughs) and turns it into a blatant lazy patriarchal hegemonic um consumerist and imperialist cash grab and that makes me sad and i think that sue's sciency glasses are ridiculous (laughs) and it makes me but they do uh, enable her frust- to, to understand her husband. That's the only time she doesn't ask yes, questions well, the, about what the science well, is, is that's is, going on. Yes. I mean, this, this is my problem, is that I think I am very protective of Sue Storm because she's, she's the first lady of Marvel. And to have her be used in this way, in this way to basically be a nagging, haranguing, sh- you know, shrew... Whose, whose job is to push and pull at Reed to make him figure out what he's supposed to be doing and, and how she needs to be saved is, you know, there, there's a certain irony to her being called the Invisible Woman because her whole 
deal is yes she can become invisible but she can also also squish you in a force field and that push-pull is very of the time that she was created and I think you know when we talked about Electra, I sort of talked about how this mishandling didn't surprise me as much. It it hurts me more to watch to watch this this property get abused and uh, consumed this way, because I think there is so much optimism in the Fantastic Four <laughs> that to get a result like this that is that is so scatterbrained and so unoriginal is upsetting the end. Uh, yeah uh, i agree with derek your your final thoughts before we get to douche yeah I'll, I'll keep them brief i mean i my thoughts basically echo lillian's i mean this is about this is about the worst that contemporary hollywood cinema has to offer <laughs> um and and particularly like the, that contemporary super films uh, superhero films have have to offer i mean there's there's a real distinction here and maybe we've reached a kind of i don't know turning point in the in the history of this this whole enterprise mm-hmm. of the podcast uh, looking at marvel on screen um where this is this is about the most blatant example of just putting putting costumes putting powers putting situations putting villains on screen mm-hmm and not putting any characters on screen. Um, you know, just the, that idea of a cash grab and the, the idea that these are intellectual properties. I mean, to me, it's so telling and so indicative um, that they were saving Galactus for another film. It's like, what are you saving? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what here is inherently interesting about Galactus that you can then pick up in another film? Um, and it's just, it's, again, like, just this idea of, okay, we have this property and this property and this property and this character and this character. Um, you know, how far can we stretch this? Uh, no pun intended. Ha, 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 I was about to say. To, to like, <laughs> right, right. Um, but, I mean, this, this really, like, th- this is the extent of it. Like, this is about as far as you can stretch it and still have a film of yeah. some kind. Yeah. Although the irony is that, like, if we think of this in, like, a toyetic kind of way, their decision to do Galactus the way they did means that there cannot be a toy for Galactus. There is no way to do a giant amorphous cloud. Whereas if they did, like, classical Galactus, maybe its scale would be a little wonky vis-a-vis the other action figures, but you could definitely do classic Galactus tied into this movie. I need to go for one minute. I really have to use the bathroom before I'm going to be able to launch into my closing thoughts. So if you guys can just keep talking for like 60 seconds, I'm sorry. Oh, the waiting. While he's gone, do, can we talk do, about how do. wrong Dooge is? Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. It's so wrong. So wrong. And I, I, am, I am so eager to hear what I anticipate will be a 90-minute uh, explication of his, his grand unifying theory of this film. It, it's an interesting question, though, to think about, like, because I really, like, David Goyer, all those remarks he made about, like, I'm uninterested in most, you know, superheroes, but this is where I am, and it, like, it, it, it makes me sad sometimes to think of it as a business, I, and I know that it is a business, I, I, but... I kind of disagree with that. I mean, it, it's... I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing to bring a critical eye to the material that you're trying to adapt. And as a general statement, 
I mean, yes, you want to embrace the goofiness where the goofiness works, but the goofiness doesn't always work, and you can't judge the quality of an adaptation by the by its fidelity to its source material. Well, but I think part of, like, there, there are test cases that, um, like, I think of, like, True Blood, because True Blood is the most, like, those novels are ridiculous, and they are not, you know, Alan Ball levels of political discourse before it all falls apart again. Are you um, talking about the I True Blood novels? And I think you can novels? do that, but the... <laughs> Man, you're on it! Yes. I just heard Alan Ball, and I was like, yeah, I don't know what, it, well, I don't know what source material he was working with for that show. Um, it... But, but I, think, I think that there's a certain, like, I think of Duchamp, you know, and you, like, you know, when you put the... When, when you put the urinal in the art gallery for the purpose of pointing out how art is odd or, of you know, saying fuck you, you need to, as long as you feel passionately about something and, you're, and your point of view is clear, I'm, fi like, fidelity is not necessarily what I'm talking about. My big issue is the fact that it seems like there was no attempt to understand and then break the rules. I... <laughs> it, it was just, let's let's do what we're doing and make as many toys as possible and this is you know this is what tests well so let's let's do this this way um i mean to me the the like polar opposite of that in some well maybe not the polar opposite but i think a good counter example to this film is guardian yeah um because that's there, a weird fucking like, film if you well if you read all of the all of the just like business discourse about this film they're like, oh, Hollywood's taking a big risk by, you know, adapting Guardians and having this really weird studio, um, this really weird comic, um, you know, on the big screen. And will audiences take to it? Um, where, yeah. like, it, it, it actually was, like, couched as, is this too weird for a movie? Um, and, I, you know, it was, it was treated, I thought, really well. And audiences really responded to it. Like, it's something, it was something different. Mm -hmm. um, oh. And, you know, I, like, I don't think there's necessarily... Uh, just a completely stark division between just like the world of business and treating you know treating the material respectfully yeah. or in a way that um, is respectful to fans. But this movie ain't an ain't an no, example no, of like <laughs> a smart business sense. Yeah, no, and I mean what's brilliant is sometimes material. you can get all of it. Sometimes sometimes yeah. you can hit everything. Like the the funny thing about Guardians is that they thought um, all the merchandise would need to be rocket, so they made all this rocket stuff. Then and then Groot. they <laughs> realized it was Groot, Groot and they were like, "What are we gonna do with all these cocoons?" Didn't even have a dancing Groot ready. Yeah. Lillian. Oh my god! In, I got one for my mom. She's like in love with me now. This is this is probably pretty representative of my general uh, take on this film, as well as many things in life. But I had always thought that Duchamp had put the the urinal in the art gallery to demonstrate that everything can be art, that there is beautiful design in functionality itself, and that you don't need to look in an art gallery to find something that will be inspiring to you uh, in terms of uh, its you know relationship between. Uh, uh, function and form, I guess. Dude, I think uh, that is the perfect lead-in to your final thoughts about yeah. why this film has redeeming Because so I go. apparently have a much more optimistic take on what, you know, w what was trying to be right. done. But lay it out. Uh, yeah. Lay it out. I'm the one who did okay, this so movie, but two, you're the one really trying to redeem it. Uh, two points here uh, before I launch into any kind of, like, larger Wait, is, this is the frame. prelude? 
Um, there's the the scene when uh, Reed is freaking out and he can't calm down, uh, and he, he it's, it's the pulse scene when he when he latches onto that word she says pulse. Uh, right before he he gets that cue, uh, she says, "Okay, you're you're freaking out right now. You're you know you're too stressed. You need to relax." She she does the and I'm putting this in air quotes, wifely duty thing of seeing that the man is is too stressed out from manning, and he he's the science the sciencing is hurting his head. He's lost sight of the force for the trees, and he needs to just take a breath and step back from it. So she tells him to do exactly that: just take a breath, uh, think for a moment. And he he does what she says, but he doesn't listen to anything that she says. His mind is still entirely on science. So when she says. Uh, oh, I can feel your pulse. Do you remember that time? She's reminiscing about something that they have shared together, their emotional relationship. She's trying to bring it back to the family thing. And he only hears the word pulse, as in tachyon pulse. Science! Uh, woman, yes, you can keep your womaning to yourself. I'm busy manning, and you've you've somehow, uh, through, through like, that uh, My Cousin Vinny... Uh, uh, deus ex machina the, the, the talking to the woman has given me some kind of divine inspiration uh, and now I know what to do so then they use the tachyon pulse and that and they all have to work together as a team to set it off uh, to coordinate the barrier that the silver surfer goes through um, but there's, a, there's another interesting scene earlier in the film where the thing uh, Ben Grimm he was like the pilot of the space mission, right? Yeah. He's ostensibly also a scientist in that he knows how like propulsion works and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he, he identifies the comet. Yes, he's, he's an Air Force colonel. He worked for NASA. He knows his shit. Exactly. Yeah. He's saying this is not a comet. It's self-propelled. It would be leaving other debris. Uh, and that is right after the, the. That's right when the military is introduced, and Sue has to ask him how would Reed know this uh, this military general. Which, I mean, she's known him as long as, as anyone else has. She's going to know that he's had past dealings with the, uh, with the military. She not only doesn't know any of the science, and isn't Sue Storm supposed to be a brilliant scientist? Isn't that how they're supposed to know each other? Am I wrong about that? Uh, Sue, I mean, the problem in this movie, I'm just talking yes, about in Fantastic the... Four in general. Isn't she also a scientist? In general? In... May I? Oh, sorry. Yes. No. yes. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead, Pat, and I'll add. Uh, so, in general... Uh, Sue Storm has not been portrayed as being a scientist. Oh, she, okay. What is yeah, she normally? Yeah, normally, she, I, stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, okay. So yeah, this is where I'll jump in. Right. The original three, like the three main like female ladies of of Silver Age Marvel that you start with are Sue Jan Van Dyne, who's you know the paramour of Hank Pym. And Wanda Maximoff, who's the girl on the second team of the Avengers. Um, Su- Jan Van Dyne is usually a fashion designer. Okay. <laughs> and and Sue's job is usually wife. Okay, I thought like, she was that the, they were supposed to actually like she was supposed to know something yeah. about this stuff. All modern this day is, interpretations this... of the character are presented as being a scientist of some kind. Okay, She's a scientist so in this because that's they a have to justify. Right. Yeah, they have to justify okay. why they're on the test flight. That's the problem, is that, like, because right. it's a space-age story, it was yeah. this idea of, like, Reed made a plane, and they felt like going on their test flight to space yeah. because I brought all my friends. Okay. Um, so it, there is, like, there is Body uh, evidence space. for the, the fact that they, <laughs> exactly. they dumbed her down for this movie. It's not just a, 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 a loyal portrayal of her comic character. 
Uh. Yeah, well, it's the same thing. Jane Foster was supposed to be in, you know, she's a nurse. She's not a physicist. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's... All right, yeah. so uh, the, the, the plots in this film, or the, the characters that we have established, I would say, are Mr. Fantastic, uh, who prioritizes uh, science and duty over family relationships. Uh, you have the Human Torch, who prioritizes uh, the material and the sensual over, like, the, the intellectual and the, the, uh, I mean, he also prioritizes human relationships, I guess, because he's the one who's trying to pursue the rest of his family, uh, but he, he struggles to find acceptance in the rest of the family, or to figure out what he can bring to the group, uh, that is best for the group. He, he looks to do endorsements to solve their money problems, which are established on multiple times, uh, or multiple occasions, I think, the fact that, you know, they're getting sued by the what's-its-face, so they got a bill from the government for all the stuff that was destroyed during something that they did. Uh, early on, they're trying to say that these people have money problems, and they don't live in a universe where celebrities are given all free things always. Uh, the, like, she does not have a wedding planner. She's trying to do all of the planning herself. Uh, well, I mean, to that point... You know, why does Reed personally need to build all the devices? Does he not have a team working yeah, for him? Yeah, it's ridiculous. He's just a billionaire working in a lab for pure science. He's not, he's not even portrayed as a government contractor who's, like, working on specific experiments for anyone else. He's just doing science for himself. And th this does not exist in our world. Like, these are the, the most shallow interpretations or, like, reasoning behind uh, the, the comic versions of these characters. They're not trying to, to make them... Uh, consistent in any way, I would say. Um, the, let's see, oh, and Sue, uh, she prioritizes uh, the possibility of having a normal family over anything else. Like, she, she cares about the world and wants it to be saved, but right now she just wants the wedding to happen so that they can prove, as a family unit, that they can have some kind of normal experience. And what she has to overcome during the course of the film is realizing that you can have both. You can do it all in some sense. You can have a family. It's just going to be a weird family. It's not going to be the template that exists in her head. Uh, Johnny eventually learns to overcome his issues by acting for the group uh, and, and not just being a showboater. Uh, there's a specific line that I wrote down right at the end when he, uh, uh, when he gains everyone's powers uh, and does something for them instead of for himself, where he says... Uh, I think it's, let's not make this about me. Um, yes, that's what he says. Yeah. yeah uh, and, you know, that's the, the evidence of him overcoming his personal journey. Uh, and Reed uh, finds a way to, to balance family with science or whatever by just mumbling through uh, in the most kind of uh, mundane fashion. Or there might be some specific thing that I can't remember. Uh, and the Silver Surfer is probably the other character, and he prioritizes uh, the the protection of his love and his world over the the value, trying to find any value in any of the worlds that he destroys. Uh, Sue reaches out to him and uh, is able to give him something to, to focus on on Earth that, you know, he actually wants to defend Earth, so then he's able to stand up to his colonial master. Um, but the... You were selling uh, that so hard. I mean, I, I really think that it's either deliberate or... It is an unconscious undertone that can't be ignored. Or it is uh, being read into it by someone who has thought way too much about potential undertones to this film. One of those three attempts to not lose their mind. <laughs> uh, as you said, I mean, this is this is the year 2007. This is the end of the, you know, it's the, the waning Bush years. Uh, America's reputation abroad is terrible. We're engulfed in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, 
that they're they obviously want to discuss torture, but it's still not like something that they're going to openly comment on. It's just like, okay, the, the military in this is, they're one of the bad guys. They trust the bad guy who's been previously established as a bad guy. Whose last name is guy. literally Doom. Yes, uh, exactly. Doom. Uh, uh, now that is a message that advertises itself. Um, uh, and they mistake the good guy, uh, or the, the Silver Surfer, for a bad guy and then torture him uh, and it's actually the the human element. To be uh, Sue fair, Storm, the Silver uh, Surfer is was a, was well along the road that. of destroying the planet at that. Point. Yes, that's true. Uh, but <laughs> that's, that's a big uh, thing to overlook. And any, yeah, no, anyway, that's that's yeah. fair. That is absolutely yeah, you're, fair. You're, you're, but he's yeah. they've established his motivation as one of love and not one of, or one of fear and love. But you know, fear for who he loves, not fear of his own destruction, mm -hmm. which is what he uh, eventually gives himself over to when. Uh, Johnny goes with him into space and says, you know, maybe we can fight this guy together. But then he goes up and I guess he thought he was going to kill himself, but then he still establishes being alive at the end. Uh, but to to bring it down to what I would say are two perfect lines that uh, make it eat, that either any anyone here can say are an argument in either direction, that it's either deliberately satirical or accidentally awful, uh, the the worst line I would say is when Johnny is chasing the Silver Surfer. They they've they've just arced around the Washington Monument uh, and all other things that the Silver Surfer goes through. Uh, he phases through the Washington Monument actually cracks, which I think is uh, and they they establish that there are random effects on things. Uh, so uh, there is a, a written in reason for why it might crack, but I would say it's actually commenting on America's place in the world uh, and that God. we need to learn to work together. Hold on. We need to learn to work together with other countries, as they do, uh, rather than just torture people and rely on the military. Uh, How did they learn to work with other countries? Uh, I mean, you, you just no one from any other country yeah, has I mean, ever given any agency in no, this No, you're right, but uh, America, like, as a geographic location, the, like, from a, from a, like, a setting perspective, there are scenes that happen in other countries instead of America that could have just as easily happened in the United States, but for no other reason than we want to uh, showcase other places in the world, we're going to put them into other locations. Uh, and the worst line is, time you, you to end this. And then he tries harder, and he catches the Silver <laughs> Surfer. Uh, which, of course, is representative of what the audience is feeling about the flippin' movie. Uh, Yes. What, I, but, what I am feeling about this discussion. And how I'm yes. feeling about these final thoughts. And the, the best line is actually Jessica Alba's. It's after her clothes catch on fire, and she is naked again in, uh, I believe, one of the, the lowest moments of her acting career. Uh, she makes herself invisible, and what does she say while she is not on screen? Why does this always happen to me? Because you are the woman in this movie, therefore the sex object. But uh, you, you get no volition of your own. Uh, and you even deliver that line, the best and most insightful line that you could say is a commentary about her character and about the, the misogynistic tropes that are found throughout this film, uh, delivered to the audience while she is literally invisible in front of them. What does it say about me that I had this naive idea that we were going to be wrapped up by 8.30? Oh, yeah. Well, I was like, this might take 20 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I, I am. Dude, uh, th that was your prelude to your final thought, right? No, no, that was all the final thought. Oh, okay. the prelude God. was the, 
the, oh, the, the prelude was the two points about the uh, the scene yeah. of the Invisible Woman and the Thing being more intelligent than Sue Storm. When he gets when Sue Storm is no, no, idiot, we we heard this then, already. Yes. We've done this. We got it. We got it. I don't need the rest of it again. was my wrap up. Now, Actually, okay, you know what? So I, 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 I'm, I give... I'm going to I'm going to to to, to wrap this up now because this okay. has gone on for far too long. Uh, I, I, agree. I will I will begin by saying I think that this film uh, should have been used by Dr. Clayton Forrester on uh, Joel or Mike because it is clearly driven dudes around the bend. And as the, re- the representative humanoid among us, perhaps... I maintain that this is a mid-2000s zeitgeist film. All of the things that are bad about this movie were bad about so many movies in this era. They are aiming at the lowest common denominator. It's that, we just care about shopping and, and uh, endorsements attitude. Uh, and the movie specifically mocks those things. You're not wrong. No, he, he is. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. He's not, he's not wrong, but we're not talking about it anymore. This, we're not talking about it. Yeah, that's my, right. My, my, my no, I don't give a crap. I just want to go home. My final thought about this film is very simple. It is that all of the ex- – quite literally, all of the exposition in this film is delivered via a projector onto a set of silver abs. And that, to me, perfectly yes. summarizes – everything (laughs) about this film, what is wrong with it, who it was for, and why it was made. (laughs) I I agree. The fact that it's secretly about Iraq. I would say that that is an argument in favor of the the points that I just made. I think that... But you've constructed a brilliant argument where anything that's wrong with the movie is evidence of the movie's brilliance. I'm saying that the more cliche something is then uh, the, the, the stronger you can go in the, either direction of either it's a satire or it's such a perfect uh, pastiche of all of these terrible things that it's actually an accidental zeitgeist film. What he is arguing is that what is, is, and what is not, is not, but what is, is not, what is not. Unless Dude, it is. Dude, have you seen the movie Room 257? Uh, yes, yes I have. The documentary? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's Dude, think... Dude, why are you not getting a PhD? Why are you not in academia? I actually was just thinking the other day that I would kind of like to get a PhD in comic studies if this I could is, find a this place is to offer literally... probably do that at Brown. Uh, Florida State. Speaking on behalf of me really? and Lillian and the entire industry of actually having to make these things, this is why we don't talk to you guys a lot. <laughs> Okay, so, whoa, whoa, uh, do not speak for me. Do not read Richard <laughs> slash Johnny Storm me. Don't you dare. <laughs> Thank you, Lillian. Apparently, right. I have to for scheduling purposes. Where's Eridus? Yes. Eridus. You could argue uh, that, that my entire oh, no, presentation no, this time no. has been in defense of writers. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the, the call to, to order. End. I'm hitting we the call to, to order. Uh, our, next film, three hours. our next film is Iron Man. Okay, Thank our next Christ. film is Iron Man. Yes! And uh, it's going to be it's going to be at least a couple years before we have to talk about a bad Fantastic Four film again. <laughs>